this is Marcus of Cinemacast, my name is Ewan Hopkins. And I'm Tom Jennings. And today we are with this John Jansen, host of the Hollywood Gauntlet. John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before we start talking about Stanley Kubrick's Fear and Desire, I thought we can get to know you, John, a little bit better. But um, how did you, where did you get this uh, interest in film? When uh, Do you know in your childhood when that spark just came and you had that seminal film experience? I did. I mean, I was a child of the 70s, so I went to the movies a lot um, with, um, with my mother and my father. And, you know, I think like a lot of children, you hit early with the early Disney movies and they're entertaining. And we were all blown away by Star Wars and Close Encounters. And I remember in 1981, I had a particularly interesting streak. Within a couple of weeks, I saw Michael Mann's Thief, Kubrick's Clockwork Orange, and Hal Ashby's Harold and Maud. And all three of those pictures really changed the way I looked at other movies. There was a use of imagery and music that was unlike anything I'd seen previous to that. They were all adult pictures, rated R pictures, because cable had come in. And I saw Thief in the theater the night it opened. And it just it, it gave me a, a perspective that you could actually use film to say something without saying anything at all. Right. Images and music could actually be a very powerful storytelling sort of narrative device. And it got me really interested in the form. I was doing theater at the time, and as much as I loved doing plays, there was really no proof of them after they were done. You either saw it and, you know, you could talk about it, but you never really could show it. So I always liked the idea of being able to photograph something on film and have that sort of permanent record of uh, whatever you were working on. Mm. And you got into studying film as well, didn't you? I did. I mean, I think like a lot of people, it was just reading every book you could get at that time, and this is the late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't a lot of information, so it wasn't that difficult to go to your library and sort of absorb all the film books in that section. Mm. You're, you're a filmmaker as well. Did you study film with the aspects of filmmaking, or did you study it to analyze it? Well, I started out um, you know, making films, and I was also a film critic at the same time for my school papers. And I quickly realized that I wasn't going to be a very good film critic because I think once you make that step, once you start loading film into the camera, once you start learning how to block actors or just trying to get a shot, any shot on film, it changes the way you look at other films. Even badly made films, there are things in there that I can really appreciate because I know of the, just the hazards and difficulties of just trying to put anything on film and you know, getting it to come off. So it, it kind of moved me away from film criticism and more into filmmaking and exploring story, storytelling through photography and through editing, mm. which always fascinated me. And I started out with the scissors and splice tape method. So it was just a matter of playing with film. And a lot of times it was so difficult. You try to do your cuts in the camera just to save time. And then, you know, naturally when uh, the digital editing came through, it just sort of opened up that that whole world of having all those options, but yet spending 20 years editing in your head really made that, that process very easy, for me at least. Mm. And uh, I loved it. I haven't looked back since. Are you act still actively involved in kind of filmmaking and kind of creative pursuits like that? I do. I work with... Uh, lately I've been doing, well, a lot of boring work. You know, I do some stuff for PayPal and some other industrial videos for other companies. Um, but my creative work has lately been with a musical group I've been doing some backdrop films for uh, live musical performances. I did one for Pink Floyd The Wall, which was a recreation of that story, and we updated it to Vietnam and sort of bookended 
with the rise and fall of the Berlin Wall. Yeah. And uh, they do, performed it live, and I got sort of free reign on doing visuals in the back backdrop. And uh, the new one I've been working on is based on the Salem Witch Trials called Abigail. So it was an idea of just trying to create some backdrop visuals that would tell the story like a silent film while the uh, rock opera music and, yeah. and uh, vocals play. So uh, that's sort of what I've been working on lately, as opposed to just writing other projects. Yeah. I mean, what do you find, think as well? I mean, I, I mean, I kind of work in kind of advertising, that kind of thing, and the kind of the explosion kind of like digital technology. And I, I've, I've come across a few people quite recently who have been quite dismissive of kind of making films on SLRs and kind of having kind of final cut and that kind of thing. So they, they sort of feel like um, it's, it's kind of democratised filmmaking in many respects because anyone now, you know, you can just get a camera, get final cut, and you can go really. And I, I, I personally think it's a brilliant thing. I mean, what's your kind of view on that kind of, tech, that sort of the digital age that we're in? Well, when I was growing up, that quote was, it's like the invention of the typewriter didn't make everybody a writer. It just gave them the ability to, to type things out. And I guess I look at the same thing for the digital tools. You know, it was very easy, you know, back in the, when I say the old days, in the 70s and 80s, when it was hard to make a film. If you wanted to, to be a filmmaker, you had to make quite a commitment because there was a lot of things to learn. You had to know about, you know, photography. You had to know about sound. You had to know about storytelling. You had to know about acting. And then came the editing and then all the mixing. And then, you know, if you're doing, you know, post-dub work and then you're, you know, doing dupes of prints, there's a lot of technical stuff in there that takes a while. There's a big curve if you really want to know all the aspects that go into it. So to make a film was a commitment, and so it really meant that you were serious about it. But I know too many guys that put off making films because, no, I have to shoot it on 35 millimeter, or no, it has to be done with this. And it's like, I'm of the idea, it's like, I'd rather go out with a video camera, make it, edit it together, and have that sort of garage band, four-track, rough demo version of the film, then no film at all. You know, there's a difference in there. There's, you can talk about it, or you can go out and do it. Now, it might, not be, it might not come out the way you want, but it won't do that anyway. I mean, even the greats don't get exactly what they want every time. But that's what's, an, I think, an important lesson. You have to learn that, you know, going out there, sometimes it's going to be, you need three hours to get ten shots, and you got one hour to get three. How do you do it? What are your choices? And that's how you sort of learn your craft. So whether, whatever tools you're using and you're making that are made available to you, I think that's just it. They're tools, and they should be used. And I don't think we should turn our nose to digital, and I don't think we should turn our nose to film. I still feel like the, the feeling of Super 8 film is so different from 16 millimeter that you can just show it on the screen and you don't have to say anything, but you feel differently when you look at it as opposed to a 35 millimeter or even a digital image. And I've always, beloved, I've always believed in the power of the feel of film when you're watching it as, a mo as opposed to, you know, all the sound and, and everything else that goes into it. Um, in 2005, I think it was, you started podcasting. Why did you... Like, how did you get into that, and what was your motivation? It was really a motivation that came from my partner, Andrew Sims, just the idea of talking about film, taking the conversations that we were having, and, and trying them out. I mean, I think like a lot of people, we, were, we dove into the forum and had that Siskel Ebert review format, you know, where we looked at a couple of films. And, mm. you know, after we did a couple of shows like that, we realized that we don't have to do that. We could really just explore a topic. 
we don't have a time limit. You know, shows at that time were like 30 minutes or an hour. And if like you were over an hour, it was like, oh my God. And I was like, this is free real estate. You know, we don't, we don't have to limit ourselves. If we want to put a two-hour show out or a four-hour show, just look at it as like a long books on tape or something. You know, let people decide how they want to listen to it. You know, they all have pause buttons. They can always come back to it. So it's a matter of let's just make out the whole buffet table and let them people decide how they want to, you know, dive in. Did you notice, like, when you were making podcasts, and did you notice any change in how you were watching films? Or was that already a part of you, that sort of analyzing it and talking about it? Uh, in such detail. Yeah, I, I love did. nothing more than to turn on a film and get lost in it. And then when it's over with, then I kind of start going back and looking at it or I want to look at it again to analyze it and, and taking a look at mm -hmm. that because I still do believe in that power that films have. They can just sort of transport you. But it's almost impossible to turn off the editor and the cinematographer in me when watching a movie, when I see something that really comes up like a really great shot or something I haven't seen before, an interesting sort of montage technique. Those, those things still jump out at me. Like when I saw Speed Racer, the film grammar in that movie just leapt off the screen, you know, using the wipes and the transitions that way. Hadn't seen anything like that. You know, it, it kind of reminded me of what Russell Mulcahy had done in Highlander or Ang Lee did with The Hulk. It was very innovative for its time. I mean, I was going to say, actually, I mean, one of the things I, I found, I you know, studied film at university and you know, now kind of like work in kind of a film environment. And I mean, I, I almost find in a way it's kind of ruined film for me because I find it impossible now to go to the cinema or watch anything and just sort of, without sitting there dissecting every kind of element of it. And uh, it was something I was talking about the other day, actually, with a friend. And they were saying that when they watch a film, they just kind of sit there and... They just go along with the story, but I think once you kind of got tune into film and you, you sit there and you think about every single decision, every single thing you see on the screen, and sometimes I find myself it's like, well, I think now I'm so thankful, for, you know, because of the home video thing and stuff like that, you can just go back and watch films again. Because I, I find one screening of a film I like is never enough anymore. I think I have to kind of go and watch a film several times before I kind of really begin to kind of digest it. And I think, in a way, I mean, do you find that kind of like a little bit frustrating sometimes, perhaps, when you kind of sat there and you're kind of like just going forensic? through it well and i think it goes in stages um and i've been lucky enough to be with the video revolution you know through the tapes through the laser discs and dvds and you know ultimately blu-rays which is just it's been such a gift like music you know going back and rewinding a guitar solo or a song and just listening to it over and over again i've been doing that with movies for a long time too and i think it it comes in that exploration stage where you are making, you are putting pieces of film together and you are out shooting. So it's impossible to not be thinking about those things. But I think as, you know, McTiernan had that great quote, I think, about, you know, it takes 20 years to develop a film pro style. And I think that's like 20 years of dedicated to any craft, whether it be a guitar or painting or writing or filmmaking. When you put that kind of thinking and time, and that's also including watching films and studying films and reading about films and making them, going out and experimenting and trying, I think you just sort of, you develop it like a, what I call like a, an air that you breathe. And it becomes a point to where you don't even need to think about it in the same ways you did, you know, 10 years ago or 20 because it just becomes such a part of your everyday existence. And maybe, you know, I'll, I'll find out here in the next 20 years, you know, how it, it adapts going on. But I find it easier now that when I do find a story I get really involved in, it's not hard for me to get lost. 
But there's still that part of me that always just comes out and says, wow, that's really great. But then I talk to someone sitting next to me that's not a filmmaker, doesn't know anything about it, doesn't really care. They don't even notice the editing anymore, sort of, you know. It's like they've seen so many great shots. They've seen so many types of montage editing and cutting. It doesn't jump out to them the way it jumps out to me even still. And that surprises me sometimes. Mm, do you have anything else you would like um, well to I think we should perhaps move on to the Hollywood Gauntlet actually because I think following kind of the end of the, um, the Hollywood Saloon I think it was I mean what, what, I, I, when the Hollywood Saloon ended I actually kind of thought we weren't ever going to hear from you again for some reason and I, I sort of thought that would kind of be it for you in podcasting what was kind of the genesis of kind of going back with the Hollywood Gauntlet well I think the genesis is the same it was at the Hollywood Saloon one of the things I guess it just wasn't publicised and one talked about is is there were many shows that were developed behind the scenes that I spent considerable amount of time on that I never got to. You know, you agree to do a topic, you pick it out, you start watching the films, you start taking the notes, and then something else happens and you don't get to it. You know, and those can sort of start to pile up after a while. And these were shows that I was invested in and I was interested in doing. And so it was just a matter of, you know, having all of this backlog of, of show ideas that I still thought would be good shows and then wanting to find a format to sort of explore those topics in. And uh, so it was just sort of a way to uh, also invite other people into the discussion. One thing, I mean, I'm not interested in the solo voice. There are guys that can do it really well, but it wasn't something that interested me in doing. And I think the, the, the combination of what Andy and I had was good. It was the two-hander that you get. It's the old Siskel and Ebert type format. But what really interested me that I like is when you get into a room and a conversation and you get diverse opinions, sometimes that don't agree. You know, like when Rick Silva comes in and says, I fucking hated Pink Floyd the Wall. <laughs> I get it, but it's one of my all-time favorite films. It's why I'm a film editor today. I, I've gone through every frame of that movie. I'm in love with it. But I totally get why he doesn't like it. I'm interested in hearing why he doesn't like it. It fascinates me. So to create a form or a format that would allow multiple voices to kind of come in you know, and, and hear different kind of views interested me more. Um, and I thought that would be a, a good way to go with some of these other topics. And it's interesting that um, that arena format that you've created. Could you tell us more about that? Because I don't ever, I never come across a podcast that does. Well, yeah, like it's that. just more of an extension of that idea. It's like if you wanted to come on the show, just let me know. Here are the topics we're throwing out. Um, and I thought the arena would be fun for the ones that didn't fit necessarily into the catalog, like a wild idea, like what happened to Star Wars and, uh, you know, the recent one with the future of the movies. Um, the Jellyfish show was kind of just a fluke. We did it just for fun, but it's still the most popular show I've put out. <laughs> out of everything, it, it, you know, the downloads are far thousands more for the Jellyfish show, but those are some fans out there that I, th I thought we might hit too. Yeah, I've never, I have to confess, I've never ever heard of Jellyfish before that yeah that and you're not alone and you know that was what made it kind of fun to do and just its own culty little way is to celebrate something like that because in a way you know even the podcasting is something like that you know it's very small it appeals to a certain kind of audience that's out there but i'm appreciative of everyone that you know has taken the time you know to listen to the saloon shows and the gauntlet shows and then to share their shows many people have gone on to do podcasts of their own <coughs> you know which i think is also really cool because it expands the conversation it means it just it kind of goes out wider to other people 
and you never know, you know who's going to be listening at any time. And then you meet the combination of people that I've been meeting on the shows, inviting them on, coming in and hearing them talk, which, uh, which to me, I learn a lot too, because the age is very different you know, from the age groups that we have. So again, I think you get in a wide range of views of people that have been looking at film for you know, 30, 40 years. Yeah, just ask as well, actually, I mean, um, is there any kind of films you've seen recently that have kind of really kind of blown you away? Because I, I actually think, personally think this year has been quite a slow year so far for films. I've not really, other than Under the Skin, yeah, which I'm kind I of obsessed with. I've not I haven't been that much, I have to be honest. Um, I'm looking forward to Linklater's Boyhood, though, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, new Godzilla film, I'm quite down with that, I have to be honest with you. Yeah, I want to see it. I'm very curious. And I, it's been the kind of thing where I've just been avoiding all the trailers. I, the one where they were diving out of the sky, saw it. It's like, all right, I'm going to see the movie. I don't need to see another thing on it. You know, yeah. I already made up my mind. You don't have to sell it to me anymore. You know, sold, I'll be there. But uh, that's the tricky thing I find now is avoiding trailers. Yeah. Okay. An art form I used to love. I used to admire watching them. I used to keep like a, a tape of trailers. And it, and it ran four or five hours long because I spent years collecting trailers. But I almost have no use for them anymore today. Well, I mean, the only one I would say about the Godzilla one, I did love the fact that they used a piece of music from 2001, A Space Odyssey, right. which was, it was kind of, it worked perfectly for what it you know, was trying to do. But no, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's so hard to say. I mean, I, I, you go on Facebook now, and like a video starts playing a trailer or something like that, and just sort of kind of completely avoiding that is nearly impossible. I'm dreading this new Star Wars film because that is just going to be impossible to kind of get away from. Oh, it's going to be, it's going to break the internet the date that trailer drops, right? I mean, it's going to be everywhere. I mean, the I mean, amount of the know, discussions going on about one picture already. I mean, if you thought the Phantom Menace was, you know, anticipated, this is going to be even bigger because of the classic, you know, Star Wars label with all the stuff of the original, you know, the reason Star Wars exists, you know, those characters that carried it, you know, made it into the phenomena that it was. So I think, yeah, it's just going to be enormous when, I guess it is December, right? 2015 now? Yeah. Yeah. That's a weird too, Star Wars at Christmas, but... You know, as James Cameron has proven, that is the slot you put your movie out if you want to be the highest grossing film of all time. Yeah, I mean, it's working all right for The Hobbit, isn't it, as well? I mean, you know, they've managed exactly. to make... Exactly. I mean, they've made, yeah. made kind of like spectacularly kind of okay films kind of get a billion straight off the bat, you know. It's you know, and it's the thing about this new Star Wars film. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm pretty ambivalent towards it. I'll be there day one. I know it full well. And, I'll be I'll be buying it the day it comes out on Blu-ray. I know it full well. It's just so it's just so tragic. You have to admit it to yourself. And even if it's the worst thing ever, I'll still buy it the day it comes out on Blu-ray. I know it. It's just it's pissing me off already. Okay. It'll be Star Wars, you know. Yeah. You got it. Yeah. And Star Wars, it always can surprise you. I don't know if you've seen any of the Clone Wars. I haven't seen any of it. Okay, but Rick Silva was saying, dude, this new season, I guess six, that's on Netflix or something that you can stream he goes just watch the first couple of episodes and i watched the first four was like a, a serialized four four episode story and it dealt with one of the clones and he breaks down early and his order comes in the order 66 and he kills one of the jedi and his friend doesn't understand why and it, it starts off like this little plot series and even though it was characters i didn't really know and it said that interview in that in that universe of the Clone Wars, it was really good storytelling. It was in you know two thirty five. It had those long, fluid takes that you get from that CGI animation. So it was weird at first. It was like this doesn't really remind me of other things I've seen. But overall, I was sort of engaged in the story, and you know it it kind of worked in that serial format that you know it was originally a throwback too. And I'm thinking 
boy, there's all these other kids out there that have so much other Star Wars that I'm not even involved with. I don't even know about. You know, it's just so big now, the universe. And, you know, it's like, you know, they're announcing, what, three other new films. And then I'm still waiting for, you know, the Cantina Bar TV series just because oh, it's, they, they have to exploit it, you know, as far as they can. Yeah, it's just, I, I have a feeling. Um, yeah, it, it's going to be strange, I think, with Star Wars this year because, I mean, the up, the, the, the the kind of out sort of the uproar over JJ Abrahams doing it. And the thing is I don't think JJ Abrahams is that bad a filmmaker. I just think he's directed shitty films so far. And I'm just praying that this is the the right material for him because I, I kind of rank Super 8 as one of my most hated films ever made. Um the new Star Trek films I just can't abide, but I I just really honestly hope and these kind of these lens flare jokes that I keep seeing it's like can we just retire that now please because that's just boring already but I don't I I'm, yeah. I, I, I think he, if it's the right script I think he might be all right I'm certainly hoping I think it. it's a fair assessment I think he's got good journeyman workman like chops I mean there are a lot of directors like a Jay Lee Thompson or Richard Fleischer that were still very competent in their craftsmanship of making a movie but yeah it's all going to be dependent on the script and story I remember Super 8 the one thing that impressed me about it was is the camera they were making the Super 8 movie with was the exact UMIG that I had. Oh, right. <laughs> so it was special just in that moment. But really, once the CGI train came, it lost me. I was in the world of the 70s. I was believing it. And then it's like they fake trained it. And it's like, wow, you really took me out. Now it's a cartoon. I don't, I'm not buying your universe anymore. That was a strange effect when I saw that movie. So I don't know. I would have, I would have, I would have pushed for the real train, you know, <laughs> wreck a model or something. Well, it's not hard though. That's the thing. This, this is my my issue with Super. It's not hard to have a real train. No, I would think it'd be easier personally, but maybe not. I, yeah, that's it. I, and I just whilst I was watching, I was just like, this is just so moronic. I mean, I, I, I don't know. It reminded me of the Goonies, and I, that is not a good thing as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned because I've, I've I've gone back mm-hmm. to that film relatively <laughs> recently, and it is awful. And, I, I, and I'm not going to do the Goonies rape my childhood bullshit, but certainly I was just watching it thinking, how on earth did I ever think this was any good? And when you're watching this fake CGI bullshit, which was Super 8, right. uh, and it's reminding you of the Goonies, yeah, it was one of the worst two hours of my life that I seem to recall. But. <laughs> well, JJ's got to know the pressure that he's under with this whole thing. I mean, heck, they even wrote Lawrence Kasdan back in on the script, right, for the, for the rewrite that they did. So, And I, you know Kathleen Kennedy, she's got to know everything's on the line they they have to make a movie that is universally it's like you know there's that whiff with the prequels that you can't ever escape that's out there in pop culture you know what i mean doesn't matter how much you love them or whatnot there's just this sort of air that they were not received like the lord of the ring films were you know and how they were received so in a way i think you know the big challenge is is making a film that A, not only appeals to the widest possible audience and can be profitable, but kind of B, brings Star Wars back up into that, you know, level of uh, attention and respectability. I think what actually it needs is a producer, as someone who's going to kind of, you know, actually kind of get a bit of control. Because if you watch any of those kind of Star Wars making ofs with Rick McCullum, he's just like Lucas's little lapdog, just saying he's a genius, he's brilliant, he's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, yeah. and I think what, it, you know, to have someone who's a bit more kind of like, you know, has a, a better overview of the project, I think that might serve it well. I, that's what I'm certainly hoping for anyway. That's my sort of kind of t- take on it. But no, we shall see. But I remember watching the, uh, the behind the scenes on the original Star Wars and that, uh, what was the producer's name on that one? Uh, I can't remember. For the top of on the original Star Wars. Oh, right. Uh, oh, right. Uh, uh, but Kurtz, I- Gary Kurtz. 
yes, I remember him talking about how he, when whenever Lucas started going off the rails of what was the real story, he always reined him back in, and you never got that impression with uh, the one. Yeah, story. and you know, I feel for George because you know he originally set out to write all three scripts before he made the first movie. But he just started falling behind, you know, and it was just anything he could do. He didn't really, I think, have enough story for three movies. He had a good outline that probably could have made one and a half or so. So it was a matter of, well, I'm going to take this chunk. Now I have to sort of hurry up and get this script written because we got to get, we got to get sequences made. It's going to take two years to do the effects and then, you know, all that. Because, you know, it took a good three years to make each one of those movies. At the, at the time, so mm. yeah, I just I think he should have just you know opened up the doors like he did in the past, and I'd have hired the you know five best writers in Hollywood and given them all a crack at it because you know that's cheap money to spend on that, even though you know he's financing them all himself. Getting on to the film at hand. <laughs> speaking, here. Um, speaking of I financing remember, it yourself, <laughs> uh, listening to. I was just saying, speaking Sorry? of financing it yourself. Yes, definitely. Um, I remember listening to the Hollywood Saloon and the ever-escaping Kubrick Masterclass show. That never was. But do you remember when you first got introduced to Stanley Kubrick? My first introduction with Kubrick was Clockwork Orange when I first saw it. That was the first Kubrick film that I remember. I had heard about 2001 after Star Wars, but I didn't get a chance to see it till later. So it was it was quite an impression, you know, and... I was interested in Clockwork Orange because it was futuristic. I was interested in any kind of futuristic film. So, you know, Logan's Run or Silent Running, anything that was kind of showing what the future looked like, I was curious about. But what struck me right away was, you know, the, the photography, the editing, and the music, and how the cuts worked so perfectly with the music. Like, they were designed. And I just, that was such a unique experience. And, you know, it's, it's a strange journey film, and it, it pulls your emotions in different ways. And I didn't really figure out how funny and satirical it was until three, four, five viewings, and I was a little bit older and more mature when I saw that film. But I knew I was in the, in the hands of somebody that had absolute control over the medium, and that's what fascinated me at, at the time. And when I read about Kubrick, that was what I read about is he was a guy who wrote the films. He directed them. He produced them. He edited them. He photographed them. He even cut his own trailers. And I thought, that's really fascinating. You know, you, that's sort of that process of doing all of those jobs. So that's kind of what I thought you had to do as a filmmaker. That was sort of what I thought the, the, the education or the school you had to go through was, is you had to learn all those jobs and do them all. What about yeah, I mean, film? just a quick aside, actually. Um, for anyone who lives in Britain down south, go to Thames Mead where they filmed a Clockwork Orange, because it is. It, it, I can't work out if it's the biggest monstrosity of a building project or absolutely incredible at the same time. And I actually went there on a, on a winter's afternoon once, and uh, it you can all the all the locations are there. And I think it was only made about the place was actually only built about four years after Clockwork Orange was filmed. And if you kind of if you if you if you like that film, go there and you will get a kind of it makes the film so much better actually visiting it. But I think my my first experience with Stanley Kubrick came uh, when I watched I, I saw Full Metal Jacket and my dad, who was kind of like the film censor in my house, he was kind of like the best worst film censor ever because he'd go out and leave he'd go with my mum and leave me and my brother on our own and he used to go to the to the video store and get us something and he knew that I really liked war films so at the tender age of eight he actually rented me a full, me full metal jacket 
and um, was just like, here you go, Tom. Yeah, you, 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 like, you like this film, go and watch it. And at the time, you know, I was absolutely, my, my favourite films were things like A Bridge Too Far and The Longest Day and things like that. And I began to watch Full Metal Jacket and I was like, what, what is this? I, I don't quite understand, you know, what, what I'm watching here. And I remember the kind of the artwork for the film um, and just that kind of picture of that kind of the GI helmet and the kind of the bullets attached to it. And it, it re- as a young person, it really made a huge impact on me because I remember the trailers were coming on television and it kept saying this is the best war movie ever made. And, um, yeah. you know, it was in the dark days where you had to wait a year for it to come out on VHS. And I watched it and I, I thought, well, what's this training thing for? You know, why is one half of this film really boring? And then the, ne- the next half's really good with all this kind of fighting going on. And I kind of, that, that was it really with, 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 with Kubrick. And I got into science fiction um, novels at the time and I read 2001 when I was about 14 and I went back and I got hold of a 2001 on a kind of a pan and scan video and I, I didn't even realize it was the same director and something kind of I, I've spoken about it before but I remember I taped Kalito's Way off um, Sky and watched it and it was the first time I realized what a director did and it's that scene where Sean Penn gets on the boat and the camera suddenly tilts and then I, I made the kind of the connection that Brian De Palma was actually saying something bad is going to happen to this character just by that camera movement and that got me interested in directors and I started going back through all the stuff I taped and I began to see certain patterns of films that I liked seemed to be by the same directors and there were people like James Cameron, David Lean and of course Stanley Kubrick and I think from the age of about 15 I began to kind of absolutely devour his work and it's it's strange because I as the formats change, I've had VHS, DVD, Blu-ray. I've all there's certain directors who, when I moved house recently, I realised that I owned all their films, and Stanley Kubrick was one of them. And I could actually see—I mean, I don't have any VHSs now, but I could see my old DVD collection. I could see all the Stanley Kubrick films, and where possible, I've got all the Stanley Kubrick films on Blu-ray as well. And I, I think personally, for me, you know, although I abide kind of top ten lists, if, if someone was to put a gun to my head and say who's the best directors ever, he would certainly be in my list. And I think one of the things I do really like about, one of the things I find endlessly fascinating about Stanley Kubrick is when when you try and kind of like, obviously, as I have done, I've made short films and kind of adverts and things like that. It's very easy to kind of replicate some other director's work, you know, someone like Michael Bates. You see, very easy to kind of do that on your, to go out and make something that looks like a Michael Bay kind of advert or product or whatever. Stanley Kubrick, I think, is one of those, it's almost near impossible, I think, to kind of try and replicate his work. It's so unique. And even as we will discuss, I think, kind of his more interesting failures, as it were, as I would probably say for Inazar is, I think his films are endlessly rewatchable for so many different reasons. And I personally, I mean, I, you know, I'm actually, as I kind of talk now, I'm looking at loads of books that I've bought about him. And he's, he's someone who I think throughout the rest of my life, I will always go back and watch his films. It's always, you can always find new things when you watch the Stanley Kubrick film. I remember watching stuff like The Shining and Formal Jacket before. I, I didn't know who Stanley Kubrick was and I, I didn't... I was, I think, I was too young in my film taste. They hadn't really, they hadn't really developed anything. Uh, but when I watched Eyes Wide Shut, I think that was the first time I really was kind of. I opened my eyes to Stanley Kubrick as a director, and I really was blown away by that film. And it remains my favorite Kubrick film of all time, and one of my favorite films, period. But. After seeing that one and realizing that he was the one that made all of these other films that I, I couldn't quite get a handle on, I couldn't quite 
understand it. I didn't, it kept me at a distance because I didn't, I didn't want to engage in it uh, in some weird fashion. I just, I watched it and I didn't, um, I didn't try to um, analyze it as much. I just let it uh, go past me. And I think if you don't engage with these films, you won't. I don't think you would get as much back from it if you don't, uh, if you just let it pass before your eyes. I think. By engaging in a Stanley Kubrick film, it will just raise in its esteem. Yeah, yeah. I mean... Oh, so go ahead, go ahead. No, no, so you go ahead, Jim. Oh, I was just going to say, that's an excellent point, because you're right, that is what made Kubrick so unique, was is his choices in material. It was, it was perfectly him. For whatever reason, it interested him enough to commit to do that story. So that's why you'd never have another Kubrick, because you'd never get anyone with that, that same sort of sense of drive of what he was looking for in the stories. And, you know, that's the great thing about discovering the catalog. Because I remember Barry Lyndon was the last one that I discovered, and it quickly became my favorite Kubrick. And it was just, it was like, the, it was the two-tape box, you know, because it was the bigger, longer film at the time. <laughs> you know, and then I didn't even get to it till I was in college. And I remember it's like, all right, I got to finally see this. It's like, I remember, you know, taking that Sunday to do it. And then just being entranced just by the, the music over the Warner Brothers logo at the very beginning, and then just sort of going into that film and, you know, having the narrator sort of, you know, lead me through and, you know, the zoom lens and everything. And then that's when I started noticing the particular qualities from film to film. And I think it's like getting into a band, you know, to use the old music references. But you go back to the early records and you sort of see the progression of ideas and technique and how it sort of, you know, follows through and what kind of growth happens. And I think it's more exciting to do that with filmmakers. Um, that's why I like sort of the early works of seeing the early films that they make in college, their first attempts at, you know, what I call, sort of so call the imitation stage that we all go through, because, you know, you see a lot of things, and then you want, you pick up the instrument that you're going to use, either a camera or a guitar, and, you know, usually the first things out of you is you trying to do things that you've seen before, and sort of, you know, work through that, and I think what's great about Stanley Kubrick in this period is thinking about an independent filmmaker in the early 1950s is very different than today. You know, it's, it's, it's so rarefied. I mean, you talk about the Robert Rodriguez story, you know, when it was a big deal in the 90s, you know, in the clerks, you know, where they were spending, you know, $7,000 or $30,000. I mean, Fear and Desire cost Stanley Kubrick $53,000 when it was all said and done. And that's a lot of money even today when you think about it. But you think about trying to, to raise that kind of money in 1952, you know, when he made the film, it's impressive. And the fact that he did it all on his own, you know, he goes down to, you know, rent the camera for what, $25 a day, whatever, and has the owner teach him how to load the film into the camera, teach him how to use and operate it, because that's what he's going to be doing. And I think that's what's impressive about the early effort of Fear and Desire, is, you know, is it's born out of those early films that he did, the, the Day of the Fight uh, boxer documentary, and then the, uh, the Flying Padre. So it's sort of like what I call Stanley Kubrick at work, you know, going on these assignments, doing these other little projects, and the seafarers would come out of that a little bit later. But, you know, to say I'm going to go out and do a feature film and then to choose Fear and Desire, you know, the, the Howard Sackler uh, screenplay. And I think it's also indicative of how Kubrick would move away from original material into finding properties to adapt later on in his career, always searching for that story. So I think it's a great place to start for a lot of Kubrick you know, fans, but what kind of I wanted to talk to you guys about before we get started was, this is a filmmaker 
who spent years trying to keep people from seeing this film and went to great lengths <laughs> to, you know, make sure his lawyers, if you tried to screen it, that, you know, that he was not happy about it. And there was a print that was found, I think, in 1991 that the Telluride Film Festival screened, and then it kind of showed up again in 94. And that was the big deal about being a Kubrick fan is, is fear and desire. I didn't see it till around 95, 96, when a bootleg finally started circulating around. And that was like that and the making of The Shining that Vivian Kubrick did were like the two big holy grails at that time that if you could get your hands on, I mean, one of them would have Kubrick talking in it and on film in The Shining, which was just remarkable to me to hear his voice. I always thought he was like an Orson Welles <laughs> bellowing deep, you know, voice of God type. But when you hear that, that sort of, you know, Brooklyn, New York guy voice, it just it, it throws you for a loop for a second. I, there is, I just got to add one little anecdote to this as well about Stanley Kubrick, and it, it's, it's, it's a, bit, a bit of a strange one, but my aunt is actually very good friends with his wife. And when I started getting into him, like, um, she kind of dropped the kind of the bombshell on me at the time that she was kind of friends with Christine <laughs> Kubrick. And I was like, what's he like? What are they like? And they went, the most normal, nicest, <laughs> average, normally nice people you will ever meet in your life. And that, I was kind of like, oh. You mean he doesn't he doesn't drive around in a helmet or like he doesn't order all his food and she was like no they're just a completely normal family who have loads of cats and dogs and he had the just... best setup I can imagine for an artist and I and I mean artist you have a large home where your family is there it's also where you work you're minutes away from a major studio where you can make films at and you get everybody to come to you I mean yeah. talk about the best situation for for a filmmaker to want to be in. And, and, and just to clarify, the house wasn't even that big either. Apparently. Oh, really? Okay. It, it just yeah. absolutely—it was, it was yeah, quite a big house, but it wasn't sort of this kind of palatial mansion where you kind of where, where I kind of had it in my head. But I, I just remember kind of like being really kind of like uh, kind of gobsmacked that mm. uh, he was just a normal mortal human being who who used to watch kind of TV and stuff like that and just do really normal things. And it, it was very strange. Um, but anyway, no, no. I mean, it's. Uh, it, I, I guess, I mean, you know, kind of talking about the fact that this film was withheld for so long. I mean, I'm a completist. That's my, and we've spoken to this before, you know, I am, if you stick a spine number on something, I will collect it. And when it comes to directors, I want all their work. And when, you know, for years, Fear and Desire had this kind of like mythical sort of kind of air forming because, you know, you obviously couldn't get it. And I, I, I personally think, I guess, the fact that he didn't want it to be seen there's an argument made, you know, should his wishes be respected? I mean, what's your kind of thoughts on that? Well, I, I want to see it, you know. I exactly. mean, that's my problem as the fan, as the student, you know, and I do, you know, recognize him as a teacher. There was a lot for me to, to be learned from watching that. The same way I got from watching the early Scorsese films, you know, watching, you know, a lot of the early Zemeckis, all of those early filmmakers, Spike Lee, even Tarantino. I, I like the process. I think it's good for filmmakers. Maybe it's not good for general audiences. You could, you could make the argument. But I can't look at Fear and Desire as a general audience. I can only look at it as you know, a filmmaker looking at Stanley Kubrick's you know, early first film. It's not like you're going to find... It's not going to be like Blood Simple, you know, discovering that, or, or Citizen Kane or something like that. But I don't even look at it on those levels because this is a guy that doesn't even have the resources of those type of films. You know, it's, it's really kind of you know, that sort of ragtag, make it by yourself, kind of how like John Sayles did with Return of the Secaucus 7. It's just like, I'm going to grab a camera, get a bunch of friends together, and we're going to go make a movie. 
Um, we we talked about this one before, Tom, about how even though he says this, he doesn't want anyone to see it, we we can really care less, um, basically. But it's I, I feel like he's he, his opinion is certainly valid, but I don't feel that he has a right to withhold. If of course he owns the rights to the film, but uh, he also wanted to hold back a film like Killer's Kiss, but he didn't own the distributing rights, so he couldn't do that. But it's the same thing where that's not a particularly good movie either. Um, but since he couldn't control the rights, he has he, he's more okay with us watching that, even though that it, you can't really say that that is a very good film other than the visuals. Uh, I, mean, visuals. My, 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 I mean, my but, kind of big bugbear with it is really is the fact that, I mean... It's like I currently the other day on um, my channel, The Keep was on, and it's the first time I've ever been able to watch The Keep uh, in widescreen. And oh, it's a widescreen. It's a widescreen print of it. I mean, it's you know, it's still not that great, but it's like if I was a filmmaker, and, you know, and we know Michael Mann won't, you know, he, he won't let that be released. But if I was a filmmaker, I'd, I would perhaps use it as an opportunity to kind of go back and almost like an, uh, you know, revisit and sort of say, well, this is what I was trying to do, and perhaps this is where it doesn't work, and okay. you know, give a little bit of context to it and say, look, you know, make your own minds up. I, I, I don't, I mean, I, I honestly don't think The Keep is a great film at all, really, but I still think it's an interesting film. I still like it because it's a Michael Mann film. I'm still interested to see it, and I, I you know, filmmakers, I think, should use that as an opportunity. And obviously, I think with this, I mean. Yeah, there's there's got to be camera setups. There's got to be sequences in there. He worked really hard on it to get that specific look and the sound and all that. And I agree that the film as a whole doesn't work. And he had he had a lot of story problems and, and studio interference problems. And when your effects guy dies on you and nobody knows how to do anything with the effects and they don't want to give you more money, they just sort of chop it up, you know, spit it out, and that's the key. That's the film we have. Not the film precisely he wanted to make but i'm with you i think use it as a as an educational sort of tool which um you know like i wish george lucas would do with like when he redid thx i wish he had kept the original in there because mm -hmm. i like watching the differences between the two but uh you know because i don't mind the old thx i still still think it's fascinating but the way he added on to it in certain sequences i think is a really fascinating you know education in what you can do today with today's technology and I, mean, I guess the, the, the problem we have here is the fact that Stanley Kubrick's dead. Are we kind of, you know, going against a dead man's wishes? And again, I'm not really bothered because from a purely selfish point of view, I want to see this film. I want it That's in my right. collection. I want, you know, I want my Stanley Kubrick. I want my complete Stanley Kubrick collection, of which now I have. You know, were he still alive today, we, we, you know, I, we wouldn't have this. I think that. You know, and you know. Like, and I'm not as harsh on the film, I guess. I mean, I, I still look at it, and I can, I can almost put myself in his position, in his shoes of just trying to make a film, trying to get it made. So there's technical aspects of it when I look at the film that I can appreciate. A lot of the photography and just the compositions of the four soldiers and the way he stages them and tries to keep it interesting from shot to shot. You see a director that you know is is out there trying. You know, so much of fear and desire. It's funny. It reminds me of like the later work of Sergio Leone at times, because you know he had to shoot it all silent and you know post dub all the actors later. And I don't think it works for fear and desire all that well because the performances never seem in sync with the actors in their environment. So maybe that creates this weird dreamlike sort of quality for the film, but it always, it created a distance to me from what I was seeing and what I was hearing. And you know, that was a choice he made in order to save money. 
um, was not to, you know, record on the set, but, you know, that's what also ballooned up his budget, I think, from 9000 He had to spend another 30000 just getting all the sound sync, sound effects, and then all the, the sound mix done on the film. So just the, the, the thing that he made a film by himself in the early 1950s is just so impressive to me. I, I, I mean, and I can overlook a lot of the other kind of things because it's like, okay, here's the script he had. Not great. How did he do filming it? I think he did pretty good in, in, for the most part in a lot of areas. But uh, Kubrick is famous for being his own worst critic and just going after uh, several dozen, even up into the hundreds of reshoots and numerous takes and whatnot. And it seems that this was a character flaw from him uh, from the very, or flaw, but it was character trait at least, even from the very beginning, that uh, he he needs to have full control and he needs to have it perfect. And when he got back to it later, he realized that the quality wasn't what he wanted and he couldn't see it for what it really was, which I, I think it's, as you said, John, quite an achievement to... He, he was able to produce this film after only shooting two shorts and he had basically no crew. He was working all by himself and he had a microscopic budget. And yeah, it, I, I, I was quite impressed just by the fact that he actually got this made. Yeah, and you know, I think a lot from his background as a photographer, you know, you have the black and white photography, the symmetrical compositions. If you're looking mm -hmm. to dissect this to sort of find the future DNA of Kubrick, you can find stuff in it. It's actually legitimate in terms of mm -hmm. how he was thinking as a as a um, cinematographer. The uh, I know he likes to throw around the, the student film qualities that he feels like it has. And I think that might be fair in, in some arguments, but that's kind of what you're doing as a film student out making your first films. That's kind of what you're supposed to do is you're, you're trying to do something with every shot. You're trying to find, you know, compositions and angles or, you know, if you're interested in that kind of thing. So there's going to sort of be that exploratory and, you know, some things are going to work better than others. But uh, and it's just so interesting to me, like when I see a shot, he's like digging in the ground with the stick and it's longer than 10 seconds. I know he's just like going through dialogue because he doesn't want to have to sync it up with. So I can almost see the <laughs> thinking behind the editing now when I look at it, because it's just you're trying to cobble it all together the best you can. Um, and, you know, I, I, yeah, it's like you were saying, I still think it's an improvement, uh, an impressive achievement just to be able to to get through it. Um, and, and how we did, because, yeah, it's a very small little idea. We don't even get to see a plane crash. We have to hear about it, you know, whereas normally that'd probably be your big opening, you know, stunt scene. I mean, I think the thing as well, you got, I mean, the, the word I was saying to you, Rene, was, you know, when I think about the film, I have to think about it in context. I mean, he was only, like, in his early 20s when he was making this film, and, you know, I think back to what the person I was in my early 20s and to who I am now, and you, you, know, you, you think you know a lot more than you do, and you know, the kind of to have the maturity that he did then. And I, I, as I understand, I think it was actually, his, was it his uncle or something that gave him the money to go and make it, and I think that was how mm -hmm. he kind of managed to get it funded. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I always say this, it's like, you know, actually making a film it's like we were saying you know john you know, so many people sit around and talk about making films and talk about doing things but they never do it and if you until you actually go out there and do it you know, you've got to learn to yeah you've got sometimes failure is part of the massive learning curve I and mean, i mean yeah, yeah absolutely and yeah, when i see fear and desire i mean you know i was watching it earlier and yeah, I, I, I mean, I think I, I updated my letterbox profile. I think I gave it one and a half out of five or something like that. But that's not to kind of, yeah, that's not to completely dismiss it. I, I just think it's, 
you kind of you judge it as a film. You don't you know, you have to look at it and say, right, this is a film. Yeah, like I would talk about anyone else, but when I kind of like, you know, I, I can kind of add caveats to my kind of critical reaction to it on the basis. And you think, good on the guy, you know, he went out there and did it. And there's some stuff in there that I think is quite interesting. I, you know, I love the, the kind of the ambiguity of it in a way. Um, it, it, to me, it, it sort of starts almost like an episode of The Twilight Zone. Yeah. I, it, it, feel, it feels like an extended episode of that. And I, I like the fact that we don't know what this conflict's about. And it's you know we don't we don't need to see a plane crash we have to, i've seen hundreds of them you know we can just kind of jump straight in but yeah, there's some elements of it that i do like and you know like i said this is this is the the first film of a filmmaker who would go on to be one of possibly the greatest ever you know so it's yeah, from that perspective there's you know there's stuff in there i think where the kind of the dna of kubrick yeah i can see elements in there that kind of transpose over to his later films yeah, and it's fair, too, with Howard Sackler. I mean, he's going to go on to, to write, what, The Great White Hope and win a Pulitzer Prize. So it's sort of his early efforts, too. <clears throat> sort of his early efforts, too, in writing, you know, poetry-like narration and dialogue. And it's a film full of ideas. I mean, that's what I think is impressive. Yeah, as a young filmmaker, <clears throat> he didn't just go out and make a cowboy film or a heist film or just a, a simple, you know, plot little, little movie. He tried to, you know, make something sort of poetic, you know, outside of the, the normalcy, because it kind of opens up like a regular Hollywood movie, you know, with the titles, you know, it has that very old-fashioned sort of background and the, and the titles on top of it, and then, you know, a nice pan shot of the forest, and then the narrator's kind of coming in and, and setting it up. But, you know, he has those, those other kind of themes that I think are interesting, uh, you know, the attack on war and the social institutions at the time, and that's going to sort of carry over in other work, but, it's, but dramatized, I think, you know, better through more maturity and experience and, you know, other things down the line. But uh, I think there's a lot of surreality to it, and I think that represents sort of his interests. I see a lot of Kurosawa in the film. Yeah. I also see a lot of, you know, Eisenstein. Of course, when they raid on that house and yeah. you get those cuts, you know, and the knife and the, and the, <laughs> the fist right in the camera and all That's that. <clears throat> but I like that. There's a burst of energy to that. Heck, there's a burst of energy in the cutting just when the, the dog appears and they all like turn their heads, you know, and, and they grab their gun. But I see some playfulness in the filmmaker just trying to do something inside those little moments to create those sort of tensions. And yeah, he's trying out the form. He's, he's, it's like you're getting out there and flexing your muscles for the first time, you know, getting into, you know, walking, running and jogging. But um, I, I like there's a there's a lot of surrealistic beauty, I think, to the to a lot of the look of the film. I know I was reading <clears throat> some background on it. I guess he had a crop duster come and, 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 and crop the whole area so he could get the dense fog and ended up, you know, making some of the actors quite sick in the process. Yeah. <laughs> but it does create a look. There's no doubt about it. I think uh, you mentioned that he's, he's trying. And he, it, it seemed, that's what's troubling to me for the film is that it's, it's so deliberate, the choices he makes, that you can feel that it isn't coming organically from the film, but it feels like this is Kubrick making all these choices and he's kind of forcing the choices on us more than letting the film speak to him and telling him what, what it needs. Like the Soviet montage is trying to tap into that that sort of style, but I don't feel it's appropriate for a film that it's that Right, it stands to out too, yeah. You're right, for the rest of the movie. Yeah, well, I think stylistically mm. it is kind of almost all over the place, but that's the type of thing you do when you're mm -hmm. learning your thing, you know, you're learning your craft, you know, you, you, know, yeah, like, you go by what influences you. I mean, I, I was, um, 
There's two know. or three wipes. Did you notice that? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, that, what's this wipe That blew my mind. Thing? I don't think I've ever remembered <laughs> another wipe like that. You know, it's like, okay, well, that's what he, it was probably an easy way to solve it. And again, so many times when I see editing choices in it, it feels like so many times it's trying to solve a problem, you know, to, you know, it's like, Ooh, I can't fix that there. Ooh, if I just cut that here, this, 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 this might work. Yeah. I mean, I'm, and I'm not a huge fan of wipes. I have to be honest with you, but, and it's, <laughs> but you know, in, you know, I, it's, it's a strange one. Cause I think the other one, I mean, he even admitted as well when, when he made this film, he had no experience really with working with actors. I mean, kind of like day of the fight and things like that were kind of, you know, kind of documentaries, aren't they really? And he'd never actually kind of directed people before. And, the thing about when you're working with low budgets, it's hard to find great actors. Mm-hmm. You know, I think, I mean, God, I, I, you know, found that out to my peril. You, know, you, you can look at people's kind of star now page or what, of something like that. And you'll see that they've done all this Shakespeare stuff and all that kind of thing. You meet up with them and you ask them to read some lines. And you're like, Oh my God, you know, and they're, they're just not great actors. And I think one of the problems I saw is that the acting isn't great. And, the, the, you, you can hear the dialogue and I know that's a, kind of a strange way but when I kind of when there's dialogue that I, I, I sort of I think really kind of stands out for me and I, I become kind of like it, it seems so artificial I say I can hear the dialogue and you can hear the dialogue in this film if it's straight it's like it's just being read straight off the page and it does kind of take you out of it a little bit but you know at the age of what 24 25 or something like that and he's never worked with actors before you can't blame him for not kind of eliciting these kind of great performances out of these people who were probably doing it for an absolute well probably for nothing basically you know so and yeah you know it's it's one of those that's the kind of the context of which you have to sort of go into this film and it's the material too i would argue if you read this on the page it plays very differently in your mind than trying to stage it and have characters say those things out loud. You know what I mean? It's very, it, it, it's prose where you can just off the page, it seems just fine, but the moment you start saying it out loud and then staging it and trying to create a realistic scene around it, it's a whole other challenge. So I think for a first time director, I think that's why you have some of the choices that you do because it's like you realized how difficult some of the staging was, and so he was finding those moments where he could do something interesting or unique. Because um, even the shots of the girl, you know, the extreme close-ups and, you know, creating some of those tensions, you know, it's very, I see it's very playfulness in, in his choices in there uh, to create that kind of tension, but it's also a filmmaker sort of playing with shots and some cutting to create that effect too. And uh, I don't know, I like that sort of youthful energy that he has in there. You know, some of it works better than others, but I guess I can just kind of understand it because, you know, by the time he got out there, there's really not much he could do with the script other than just shoot it, probably, you know, and I think that's going to be his most important lesson is being able to work it out on the page to a degree where you'll have that other time to explore, you know, when you're making the film. Well, one of the things actually I was going to say, um, in a way, this the kind of the dialogue and especially the bits where they're kind of like they're walking along and you can hear their kind of inner thoughts. I was kind of reminded of the thin red line. Mm-hmm. And this is a, and this is a film which the thin red line is a film, which I've kind of argued a lot on in the fact that I kind of love that film to look at, but the kind of the, the narrations that you hear from the characters doesn't seem to fit. They're so poetic what they're saying. And it's kind of this really sort of, you know, very kind of beautiful dialogue, but it doesn't seem to fit 
the, the people that are actually saying it. You can't imagine those kind of people actually thinking that. And I, 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 for, the, for the sake of the thin red line, it works. I, you know, I, I, I do really love that film. But it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, like almost a precursor to that kind of style where you're kind of hearing these kind of people's inner thoughts. And that's something I've, you know, in, like I said, I was obsessed with war films and I've, I've never really kind of seen that other than this and the thin red line. And in a way that I, I still think that's kind of a quite unique thing about this film. It does remind me of some of those sort of underground films that would come later on in the 60s where that kind of experimentation was far more normal, where you were seeing those kind of odd things, where dialogue contrasting, you know, over people not saying anything. But, yeah, the interesting montage of all the voices I thought was a clever way to just sort of get in all those ideas over just the walking sequences. And it's almost like in each little sequence, <clears throat> you could sort of look at something that he was trying to do um, that would make it unique. The one where the you know he's putting several dissolves, where the soldiers remembering the attack all on top of each other creates sort of a, a surreal moment visually there as well too. So uh, I think again and sort of keeping because it's a short film. What about just barely? Yeah, it's not even hour. seventy minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Speaking about Kubrick and the actors, wasn't isn't he famous for like leaving the work up to the actors and not just. He doesn't give them as much instructions, but just keeps getting them to do take after take, having them search for what he's... That's what I've read, for. too, that he, he won't whisper into an actor's ear and give them anything specific um, out of fear that they'll underline it. And I've, I've actually had that happen mm -hmm. to me with an actor before, and it's a good lesson to sort of learn is, you know, sometimes, because then they'll try and put the exclamation point because they know you like that or something, you know. So now they're thinking of that thing that the first time they did it, came naturally and that's why you liked it so he's always I think trying to keep them in that zone of you know make them do it 30 times to where they're not even thinking about the scene anymore and then weird things will come out of just behavior of not acting but just you know living and behaving in the scene sorry the, the, the best Certainly. example of that I think is Eyes Wide Shut where you watch Tom Cruise and you see I have you know, there's a Tom Cruise film isn't there you know where he, he he plays Tom Cruise. You know, and he thinks that's the only film I've ever seen where you think that's that looks like Tom Cruise, but that's not Tom Cruise. And I mean, he you know, let's, let's be yeah. honest. I mean, he he was a director. He he was a very savvy businessman. He worked with stars. You know, um, oh sure. Yeah. I mean, Ryan O'Neill was a very yeah, deliberate Ryan choice. Yeah. I mean, he was The Shining was a very deliberate piece of you know property to choose to do at that time, and picking Jack Nicholson at that time, who was probably one of the biggest stars in the world yeah he was very calculated in his choices and I think he yeah he, he seems to strip away star persona from his actors and I think that's an incredibly I mean I'd love to know how he did it and how he managed mm -hmm. to do it so successfully every time I, it's such a shame the Napoleon film was never made yeah and I, I'd, I would love to have known who he was going to cast in that and it's just, it's just one of those kind of you know, it's one of those big wish projects, isn't it? It's so, it'd be so great if that film was actually out there because I, you know, obviously because it wasn't made, but I, I genuinely, from everything I've read and heard about it, I genuinely believe it, it would have been something quite special. Um, certainly he must have some gifts with the actors because he wouldn't have all the time necessary to like wait for performances throughout his entire career. He didn't have as much of a luxury with time early in his career, but in fear and desire, he doesn't seem to be able to control the actors in the same way that he was able to later on and to actually direct them, even though he's doing it in this sort of uh, non-deliberate way later on. It seems that 
most of the characters in Fear and Desire are. And it's the post dubbing too. It's it's tough. That's a real yeah. art form in itself. Yeah. And if you have inexperienced actors, you know, some of them might come in and can do better in post dubbing and really improve their performances. But and when I see the film again now, it's just it, it really creates a distance between you know the acting and what they're saying and what's happening on screen for me. Hmm. I mean, let's not forget as well. I mean, this is a twenty what twenty four, twenty five year old or whatever directing oh, sure. people who are pretty yeah. older, older than yeah. you. And you know, when you when you're younger, you, you tend to look up to older people just naturally because you think like you should that they you know, they know something I don't. And yeah, if you if you're not used to working with actors, and I mean. This is the thing as well. He has this reputation, doesn't he, as being this kind of like tyrant towards actors. If you watch the making of The Shining, he's other than Shelley Duvall, who I think mm-hmm. I think she, 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 <laughs> she just seems like a major pain in the ass anyway. But, yeah. but I mean, you know, like you know, it was very sense. very deliberate casting on his point, absolutely, because he wanted to make sure oh. the audience wanted to wring her neck too, you know, yeah. by hour number two. <laughs> but I, it's it's a brave performance on her part that she was able to sustain that for over a year of shooting, you know, at different moments yeah. in time. You know, it's, I mean, you know, it's, I, I, can, I can see why that movie drained her and why he had to be that type of director on that film. Well, there's, that, there's that brilliant scene where her hair's falling out and I think you hear him in the background say, no one feel any pity for her or something like that. He just walks mm-hmm. off. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like this poor girl <laughs> sat there smoking a fag. I think she's actually like passed out at one stage, isn't she? Like just sort of like laying on the floor and he just stands over her and sort of like nonchalantly walks off and starts talking to Jack Nicholson. You're like, it's kind of mean. And you're sort of thinking, but it's like, I can't stand people like that. You know, absolute wimps, basically. It's like... Uh, and I'm sure she felt like, ganged up on too, you know? I mean, it's... It's a very male-dominated, you know, uh, perspective of a movie. Oh, but, well, uh, exactly. Uh, yeah. <clears throat> no. The, the narration that opens the film, do you feel like it comes in and out uh, throughout the film, but do you feel like, could he have done this in another way? Did he need that narration to tell us that this is a, fi- a fictional war, which he says in such a deliberately poetic philosophical musing musing style that you, you just I, I I really couldn't take it seriously in, even from the first and when frame, I hear terms like dated it, sometimes that's I guess what I think about you know I was, I was trying to think about what would it have been like to be mm-hmm. in an audience in the 50s and have a film open that way it probably wouldn't seem that strange at all you know because so many films would use that device just to set up even a basic romantic comedy or whatever you know just give the audience information and then sit back and you know let the movie start Sunset but you know, it is trying to be poetic like you're saying so a lot of it's going to determine on the strength of the words and the delivery and everything else and the music and, and how it sets the tone um so I don't know if he needed it or not no I think it could have been more powerful because the visuals were working so strong for him um, he could have leaned, you know, more on those. But I think it's always just that great worry of making sure the audience understands, you know, at all times. And the other one as well, I mean, I was thinking about it when I was watching it with that open narration, and it, yeah, I think it's trying to be archetypal. That's the, the, the whole film is really, I think it's sort of saying this is sort of like a recurring theme through sort of history. Mm-hmm. And as... I didn't get that. Well, no, that was, that, that was what I was kind of like trying to add to it. But I mean, it was like, you, you got, you've just come out of what, you know, the... World War Two ended in forty-five or something like that. But you've got career going on as well at the moment, and I think he's trying not to deliberately not put it somewhere ultimately recognisable. I think he, you know, like I said, he wants to kind of go for this kind of archetypal thing, and that's why I kind of talk about the Twilight Zone because it did remind me of those opening narrations to that way. It kind of mm-hmm. plonks it down, and you know, you get plonked in the kind of like some world or other. And yeah, I mean, it's 
it's very on the nose and it's very kind of obvious and it, it just kind of draw attention to itself in the fact that it just seems so clunky. But I, I mean, I don't know if you've, if you've have you two seen um, How I Ended the Summer? It's a, that, no, no, watch no. it. It's a, a film that came out last year in Britain. Um, and um, I think it got, I think it, no, sorry, it's called How I Spent the Summer. Actually, but it's a film where basically set in Britain and a nuclear war starts and there's something going on, but you don't actually ever find out what this thing is. And I kind of like it a lot more because it kind of you can kind of add what you want to it. You know, you can kind of you can sort of fill in the blanks yourself, really. You're not kind of right or wrong. And when I was watching Fear and Desire, I was sort of thinking, well, I mean, and I know it was filmed in California and there's kind of those girls they meet who I think they might speak Spanish, but I was like thinking this might be some kind of alternate kind of history film you know like almost like a science fiction film like some kind of wars broken out in america or something like that and i kind of like that element about it it almost fits the twilight zone format if you trimmed it back a little bit you could fit it in the you know the 50 minute episode format for that show and, and you could fit into that sort of you know surreal idea of you know no specific time and place for its story but uh here were a couple of uh, facts that I, I wrote down about it. It was shot in five weeks at a cost of $5,000. Uh, the cutting room rental was $67 a week for a total of $400. The RCA Studios for the mix was $75 an hour. The RCA Raw Stock for the mix was $300. Sound effects were $500. Opticals, $250. A sync screening was $150. The lab bill was $700. Miscellaneous, $600. And then he had to pay a music union bill of $1,039 because of uh, the people that played on the score were part of the union. So even in the low-budget range, we're still talking about you know, a sizable investment, you know, even in you know, the 1950s. Um, and I think I read somewhere, too, during this time, he also shot second-unit footage for a, a TV miniseries on Lincoln at the yeah. time, too. Something like that, too. Yeah. So he was doing anything he could to actively, you know, get funds to help, you know, him complete this film any way he could. But as he did, he did quote himself saying, pain is a good teacher. The ideas we wanted to put across were good, but we didn't have the experience to embody them dramatically. If it, it was a little more than a 35 millimeter version of what a class of students would do in 16 millimeter. Yeah, I mean... The, the, I mean, I, 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 yeah, like I said, I was listening to a thing before it came on, and he was saying it's like a pretentious load of twaddle and all that kind of thing. And yeah, you know, it, it is. But I mean, it's the, the fact that this film, I mean, like, I think, was it the, the post side of things? I've read reports that they, he spent another $20,000 or something after the film just to do all this kind of post syncing work. But one of the one things I would say about it, I really like the kind of the soundscape of the film. I don't know if either of you two noticed that. With the like, background noises, you mean the bombs and stuff? Yeah, like yeah. That there, there's yeah, like a bigger yeah. world out there, and again, and so that film I was talking about was called How I Live Now, actually. But that that does, did a similar thing where there's this kind of there's this sense that there's this bigger thing going on over the hill, mm-hmm. and you don't know what it is. And again, yeah, I, you know, that's another factor of the film that I, I I did quite enjoy. And you know, you have that you know sort of the the journey, you know, the odyssey that the characters are going on that you can you know look into that. Um, you know, the whole world is a dream. But um, I sort of like that, the, the idea of them, uh, you know, each representing a different sort of type. 
you know, um, with each of their personalities, you know, the intelligence and sort of the emotional drive, their, their lust and fears and, you know, the, the self-discipline. But, uh, you know, at the end, I guess they're just sort of all, you know, splintered or whoever survived sort of, you know, carried on. But uh, it has that sort of, you know, bleak open ending. I noticed the first shot and the last shot were the same shot, interestingly enough. I don't know. That same sort of pan shot of the forest. So it's almost like ever going in a loop, maybe, or something. But uh, well, I, yeah, I don't know. Well, one of the things that, I mean, I think the, one of the film's biggest problems is I don't like any of these characters at all. They, they, mm-hmm. don't, they don't really mean a great deal to me. Even, I mean, I, th- I think probably Barry Lyndon is a classic example. Barry, Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon is an absolute shitbag. And he's just a horrible person. At the end, when he's doing that duel, you're literally screaming at the screen for him not to get shot. Even someone that unlikable. And, that, yeah, that's the thing about Stanley Kubrick. A lot of people say his films are very cold. I don't think that at all. I mean, you know, when Hal's being dis- disconnected, that's, a, that's painful to watch that scene. Yeah, I agree. I never understood the cold either. I mean, the subject matters are tough, you know, to be sure. But I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of, you know, human emotion all the way through all his pictures in one way or another. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, uh, another perfect example. That, that scene where um, at the end of Eyes Wide Shut where obviously Tom Cruise is confessed all to Nicole Kidman and it just suddenly cuts to her sat there with red eyes and yeah you feel that betrayal and how awful that must have been her hearing all that and this yeah I like I totally agree I don't get this kind of thing where you know we sort of see his film people say his films are so cold and detached I just think it's just a different way of kind of watching films but in fear and desire I didn't actually feel anything for anything and I, I sort of thought the kind of the guy in command I can't remember his name the the, the Air Force guy. I sort of thought he was going to be the kind of the kind of the anchor to the film, but he he completely kind of changed when when they get that girl and he's just kind of like running his hand through her head and it's dead creepy. I thought mm-hmm. and I suddenly thought you're meant to be the kind of the guy who's like the you know the I don't know. I, I recently watched Memphis Bell again, like the you know the the captain of the of the of, of the plane, you know, the kind of the stand up guy who everyone can look up to. And I'm just thinking you're just an arsehole as well, really. And it's and it's strange when you're watching a film. Like you, it's very odd when you and I had it recently when I watched Under the Skin is that you don't in Under the Skin you don't really kind of like root for the lead character but in a way that's kind of part of the film but in this I, I think there's no one to root for because I don't think anyone's actually been written kind of strongly enough or with enough depth really to kind of have that connection with and that was one of the problems I found with it I was just sort of thinking I don't care about these people really and when you don't care about the people you're watching I think it's quite hard to engage in a film I think that's fair. I think that's fair. And also, you know, the sort of youth and inexperience in that way, too. I mean, he kind of, he had to deal with what he had to work with, you know. And, you know, mm. some of the staging is very stagey and theatrical, you know, maybe in how they're sort of one standing up and they're all sort of positioned around. But it's perfect for framing. And I go back to the the one three three frame, which is just like the the viewfinder for a photographer's camera. You know, he's very conscious about using the space of that 133 frame. And, and sometimes I think in, in unique ways. And, you know, there's certainly things he'll do in this film that he won't return to as a filmmaker, you know, in some of those sort of techniques and the extreme close-ups and that sort of, you know, Eisenstein-type editing. But, uh, you know, I, I go back and it's like, you know, you get stuff out of your system, I think, in these young early films. And when you look at a lot of early works from a lot of directors, you'll see them playing with a lot of techniques like that, sort of working their way through certain ideas, later to learn, you know, 
a much simplified way to sort of dramatize those ideas without having to use so many stylistics along the way. You can definitely see that Kubrick came to this as a photographer because you have these beautiful close-ups, but they don't really gel together as much. And you have some natural great lighting, but overall, when he tries to put it together, that it has this sort of cinematic, poetic language that works at times, but other times it's very clunky and pretentious as hell. But it could, like, you could definitely see that independently the shots work, but when you put them together in the scene, they they kind of. Uh, yeah, a lot of triples, up. doubles, and singles in terms of like seeing three actors in a scene and then you cut two and then a single, you know, for the close-up and stuff. So, uh, yeah, a lot of interesting, you know, ways of, of staging. But I'm with you, and I think a lot of that clunkiness just has to do with cobbling it together in the way he did. Um, yeah. Um, at least it, it comes across that way. But uh, at least he puts a big dog in it, right, so we can get those cute moments. You know, big close-up of <laughs> a dog never hurts. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and I did make a note about that overlapping dialogue, that surreal sort of montage of voices. Yeah, that's. I think it's interesting, you know. And it's it comes early in the movie too. You're you're barely even what ten minutes in. You even get your first fade outs. So if you're looking for another thing Kubrick used a lot, which is that fading out of a technique, you know, just that close close curtain and go run in on the next scene. I mean, I mean, the other thing. I mean, I've, I've, I've yeah, I've got it on now. I'm watching it. And there's a scene where the kind of the guy's freaking out in front of the girl, and he stands up, and the camera doesn't even pan up with him. It actually, he actually kind of goes completely out of yeah. shot and things like that. And it's, it's little things like that. You sort of, you, you know, you, you kind of these kind of these. I suppose mistakes would be the word for him. But I'm sort of with you, Joachim. If you take some of the the stills from this, I mean, the the comp- composition's pretty great. But it's I, I, I think personally, and I, from from experience, I think the reason why it doesn't flow together is because I don't really think they probably knew what this film was actually really about. I think it was probably mm-hmm. conceptually a lot yeah. of things, and yeah, we're doing this. But I, I don't think it really kind of the kind of the master plan was there in what they were trying to say. And I think that's probably the the reasons why it, it doesn't work a lot of the time because it's you're kind of stretching for something you don't actually really yourself kind of hasn't really solidified in your mind. But the one thing I did want to kind of talk about was. I think there's there's certain kind of elements in this film which I think are kind of the DNA kind of of, of some of Kubrick's work because this is someone who I think had a, a fascination with warfare and if you look at his films you know a lot of them are do take place in kind of militaristic ways and I just want to you guys I mean do you, do you look at this film and sort of think I can see elements here of kind of reoccurring themes that go through his work. Um. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I just wanted to make a note before I forgot, though, about uh, that subjective camera was when he was with the girl, kind of looking up at her. I, f- I felt like that scene when Alex was looking up at the girl, you know, when he's on doing the uh, presentation, had that same sort of perspective look to it, you know, and then he falls back out of, out of frame. So even using that subjective camera, even that early on, you know, for those kind of scenes. Um, but yeah, I mean... Anti-war film, war film. I mean, I guess someone once said, what, all war films are basically anti-war films, but I don't know. I mean, I guess it's all depending on how it's made and the delivery and the intent. But uh, I think certainly the theme of war um, inhumanity to mankind and so forth would carry on, you know, and do well. I mean, reaching satirical forms, of course, in Dr. Strangelove. And I mean, but see, I find satire in all his movies. There's parts of, of Clockwork Orange and Full Metal Jacket that really make me laugh out loud. Like that, you know, when he's 
doing with the badge, you know, the, the, the Jungian, Jungian thing, sir. And he goes, pauses. Whose side are you on, son? Cracks yeah. me up every time. <laughs> it's like he's so bewildered. His superior officer, the guy can only resort to, okay, you must be on the other side for thinking that way. It just makes me laugh. And there's a lot of undercurrent in Kubrick's work. And that's where I think it goes back to the rewatching. You know, it's never that way necessarily on the first viewings. It's always in the rediscovery and finding those other things in there, you know, where they had really kind of thought through, um, you know, for those moments. Because, you know, the first viewing always just sort of washes over you, especially in a, in a Kubrick film. I remember I had to see Eyes Wide Shut like three times within, you know, a three or four day period. Because I knew I wasn't going to see it the first time. It was just like, okay, now the wait's over with. I've seen it. Now I can go back and really watch it. But uh, that's the joy. And I think that's why... One thing that always I appreciated about Kubrick when I first got into him and really only having access to a lot of his reviews was how many bad reviews he got for his movies. And it was so comforting to me because I would love this film. And then I'd read these really horrible reviews and say, I do not agree with you. And it felt good to not agree with, you know, all those other, you know, certain kind of viewpoints. But also made me realize that, you know, it doesn't. For, from a filmmaker, he had the right attitude all along. You know, he, he puts the film out there. He lets you make your own interpretations. You know, he's not trying to explain it to you. And he's not going to provide a commentary for his work. And he's not going to do interviews and dissect and explain everything to you. They're for you to experience. And that is the ongoing power, I think, of all those films. And, you know, when The Shining came out, everybody was put off by, you know, Nicholson's performance. But now it's all accepted you know, in that way for the choices that, you know, Kubrick made at that time. But he made choices that weren't typical. They weren't choices that perhaps a lot of other people might have made. You know, he was looking for that something else out there that might maybe not be comfortable or, or noticeable or somewhat, you know, necessarily entertaining the first time around. But I think it always resonates, and I think that's why we, we all just keep coming back, you know, again and again, is you're dealing with an, an artist that was constantly trying to at least improve upon and work on his craft. I mean, even back in these early days, taking on all of these jobs in fear and desire, I think, is the DNA that you're going to see in, in all the Kubrick. He will care enough to do as much as he can in all those departments. And that's something I've always, you know, continually been inspired by. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I've been asked when I was watching it, um, the theme of madness is is there in this film and if you look at a lot of these films yes. you have characters who are completely crazy and i it, it fascinates me you know, what i wonder what his kind of interest in sort of you know mental deterioration was um you know because you see i mean i, I you, know, you see it in all of it, even to the point of 2001 even how you could say kind of begins to exhibit slightly kind of crazed behavior i don't know we would like, like find, find that's kind of based on mm. its conflicting orders but yeah there was your thing like yeah the, the war films and stuff yeah you know, I've, I've, I've gone back and i've watched paths of glory again recently and he made films where sometimes it, it's strange when you watch a lot of war films because I, I sort of see what say, you, you, you know, war, no war film can ever be kind of, you know, they're always anti-war films. I, I don't necessarily agree with that. I, that, that, that kind of, whoever kind of made that statement, I think some films do kind of are kind of quite pro-military, but with all of his films, I think they show, especially dealing with kind of the subject of conflict, I think they always make it out to be this kind of horrendous, awful thing. And I, I, I from what I've read about him, I think kind of, he was kind of quite interested in kind of warfare on the basis that it, it was something that just appealed to his kind of sense of kind of, almost like obsession with kind of numbers and facts and things like that. And when I was watching Killer's Kit, uh, sorry, Fear, Fear and Desire, 
I, I could sort of see how this kind of mind would go on to sort of like kind of distill that into films like Parvis and even Spartacus, I think, which is a, mm-hmm. like you could say it's an epic, but I think, yeah, it's still a war film of sorts. And that's like uh, Spartacus, another example, which they were, I think that's a great film. I love it. And I've, I can't remember. And how he hates time. it, right? Cooper yeah. just dismisses. It I, I, I love that film. I, I, it really gets me that film at the end. Yeah, when it's just, the kind of music, you know, and that bit where he kind of his kind of wife sees him up on the cross. I, yeah, I always well up at that. And uh, yeah, it's, it, it fascinates me that he could, you know, to, to go from fear and desire and what, like, you know, what, what seven years later he's making Spartacus. That's oh, it's incredible, yeah. And I think it's that detached camera that we were talking about earlier, but it gives you that, that distance, that like almost like a, a war journalist or photographer to where you're looking at it. You can make up your own mind about how horrific it is or, you know, however it is. You know, he's sort of giving you that perspective, and I think that continues on, you know, as well. Maybe that is not comforting for a lot of people that want to sort of have their films telegraphing emotions and ideas for them at all times, you know, so they can feel safe on on one choice or another. But Kubrick's films aren't safe that way, and I think that's why they're you know continually to be compelling. Is is they they, they do bring up sometimes those unco- uncomfortable questions that don't have necessarily you know easy answers. Well, yeah. Sorry, no. You're just it's good, go go there. But for instance, I mean, it has that bit where that where the guy kills the girl, and I think that's a really horrible moment in the film like genuinely when he keeps cutting back to her laying there on the ground that one shot yeah and especially the one from above yeah and yeah. i mean it's it, the thing about you know a lot of kind of films like death is so sort of um i guess was impersonal you just don't really think about it. i mean that, it's that stupid debate isn't it like that the office workers in marvel films who get killed every you know in, in every film when like <laughs> right. the spaceship crashes through the, yeah, but you know, I, I sort of see the point but you know in this i think he's when when you see that that, that girl die you really think it really resonated with me and you know, this mm-hmm. is apparently someone who you know has no interest in human beings but i think he's actually i think yeah it makes its point quite well you know that this is a, a tragic waste basically that what what's happened to her goes back into the attack on the first soldiers who's so brutal because they don't have weapons and how they have to defend them other to when they shoot the other guys at the end and it's just so quick boom boom and they're on the ground you know just dead um i even got a little war room scene um in there when they're in there talking with the map behind them and just the way the lighting was you know <laughs> just like the low budget i'm going to do it in my garage version of that idea you know but uh just setting that mood. And, and again, the lighting is so key. And the black and white, to me, just really makes all the difference. I, I love it. I, I really miss you know, a lot of films being in black and white. Uh, Joachim, is that your dog? No, it's the neighbor's dog. Oh, right. Sorry. Sorry, I was going to say, like I chuck it a bone or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, but what I was going to mention with the recurring themes of Kubrick was that well, the thing that you mentioned, Tom, with the like characters that are breaking down, because it feels like there's this lingering anxious tone throughout the film that I feel I can trace throughout all his films where panic and imminent breakdowns they seem to be present at all times and it has this like it's this cold solemn look at the realities of war and what its effect is on the soldiers but uh, you can you can trace this cold solemn look to his other films as well that's what I think the coldness comes from it's not that the characters aren't relatable or that we can't see them showing any emotions, but it's the fact that I don't think Kubrick is intentionally trying to warm us up to them. We have to, we have to warm up to them through watching their vulnerabilities. 
Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I, cer- I, I certainly yeah. agree with it. I mean, I, I think it's it's more of a case of they were just poor, poorly thought out. I think that's mm. the problem with these characters. I don't think they're they're, they're flash actors. Yeah, in this case, it is. But yeah. you can see like the the seeds are growing. Yeah, there. yeah. I mean, it's yeah. like when I when I watch The Shining and you watch Jack Nicholson in that. Does, does he does he does he even seem vaguely normal to you when he's being normal? Yeah, I mean, it's, he's still he's still a pretty scary, strange person, isn't it? And when you watch, well, that, do you think it... that's something we bring into the movie when we watch this? Because I've had this conversation of, before, where people say, "Well, Nicholson's crazy from the first scene of the movie," and I don't see it. I mean, I look at the interview scene. You know, he's he's sort of bland. He has those eyebrows, so maybe just when he you know cracks a smile, he just comes off as crazy because. What, three years earlier, we just saw Cuckoo's Nest, right? So it's going to be impossible for us not to bring crazy into that movie. But when I look at the choices Jack Torrance makes on paper and in the film, I mean, maybe when he's you know in the car listening to the story and he saw it on the television and he gives that Jack grin, that to me is not crazy. That's just sort of being sarcastic to your wife you know, and your family. It just sort of said more of a trait of just kind of what a kind of what of a dick Jack Torrance kind of is, you know, in there, but not crazy. But, you know, I don't know. I, I, and I find it interesting because, you know, other people's, you know, viewpoints are absolutely valid as well, too. And that's that great puzzle that The Shining is, other than it being some kind of an excuse for faking the moon landing, which I think we can all agree is pretty ridiculous. Oh, God, I'm yet to watch that film, and I've, I've, I've got it ready to go, and I'm sat there thinking, can I... Can I put myself? You're not alone. I have it too, and I haven't watched it for probably the same reasons. Just like I, I just, really need to give 90 minutes of my life to this nonsense. You know? No, no, that's the thing. It's not 90 minutes. It's like two and a half hours. Oh, and I'm just like I sit there looking at it sometimes. Right, come on, let's just let's just do it. You know, uh, just Nymphomaniacs just come through the post actually from Love Film. Oh, and nice. Like, last night I was like, right, I'm going to watch Nymphomaniac, and I was like. Or shall I watch a Eurovision Song Contest? What's going to make me laugh more? And I think it's going to be the Eurovision Song Contest. I might, I might watch part one of Nymphomaniac tonight. But it's one of those. It seems it, it feels like it's going to be an ordeal to get through, and it's going to annoy mm-hmm. me. And I always go back to this. I've only ever seen Raging Bull once, and it, mm. it, it, every time I watch a shit film, I always think I've only seen Raging Bull once. And it's, it's mm. you know, and you know, it, it's, it's one of those. But I mean, yeah. some films have that power, though. You see it; it's so good. Sometimes I don't even want to rewatch it again right away because I don't want to spoil it. I don't want to burn out of it. You know, I like it being that sort of special experience that I can revisit without, you know, having to know every inch of a movie too. There can be something to be said for that. Yeah, what's worse is I've owned I've owned it on video, DVD, and <laughs> Blu-ray. Listen and to the commentaries, and that's what that's what they're for. You know, yeah, <laughs> that's what well, I the, do. When I don't want to rewatch, I, I just listen. <laughs> The time I did see it was at the cinema, so I've actually bought it three times and never. Oh God, I don't know. Wow. That's, that's, that's just. <laughs> well, you're not going to top that experience, probably. Anyway. No, exactly. So. But no, but I mean, kind of like you know, going back to fear and desire. I mean, I, it, it's it's one of these kind of oddities, really, where it's. I mean, I was trying to convince myself whilst I was watching it. You know, this is the film, but I, you know, I, I try to give myself kind of reasons for liking it. And one of the things I did kind of think about was this film was made at a time when film itself was going through some fundamentally radical shifts and yeah, we were kind of going into the era of kind of cinemascope you know huge massive films and in america at the time kind of there was a kind of a boom really in films kind of coming over from europe like the kind of the neo-realist stuff and kind of what would loosely be described as art house cinemas cropping up and i was kind of consciously aware of the fact this is the type of film which was not necessarily perhaps made for those kind of cinemas, but one that was actually kind of fitted into the kind of the 
showreel, yeah, the, the kind of the programs of films that were being shown in there. And in, when I kind of think about it in that context, as a Sunday, it was actually shown with a Lewis Binwell film, I think, as a kind of a double bill, as kind of an exploitation film. And in that kind of context, I did find myself kind of thinking, I have a little bit more kind of time for it, I suppose, because it's, like I said, we're kind of going back to this kind of like Twilight Zone analogy. It does feel something that's very different from what was coming out of Hollywood at the time. Mm-hmm. And you're liable to walk away with it. I'm not sure if I liked it, but you're remembering a few key things in it, you know, which I think can be a, a sign of, you know, some, some interesting work that's, that's going on. It's interesting as well, because when, when I was preparing this as well, I was looking at the kind of the short films that um, Stanley Kubrick made, and I forget that he was, you know, a resident of New York and a very kind of specific kind of art scene in New York. And we, I know he kind of moved to Britain, I think it was in the 60s he came over here. And I, th- I think it's quite interesting because he's you know, someone who probably kind of was hanging out with kind of people of a certain kind of creative mind. And it feels like a film that's been made kind of, you know, talking it through with kind of, you know, kind of you, mm. your buddies down at the coffee shop and things like that. And that kind of New York art scene. And that, that was one of the other kind mm-hmm. of I was consciously aware of that whilst I was watching it. His wife at the time, Toba, seems like she'd be very much a part of that bohemian sort of uh, experience going on in New York. She's in the film, too. I noticed her in the water as one of the three girls. I really... But, uh, yeah, she was the uh, dialogue director, as she was credited on the film, (laughs) as script supervisor. But, um, yeah, I think they would uh, separate shortly after this film, meet his second wife, and then separate with her, and then meet his final wife, Christiane, on Paths of Glory. But... um, yeah, interesting period. Like you said, when you think about where he went from Fear and Desire all the way to Helming Spartacus, one of the biggest Hollywood movies of that time, it's a pretty impressive feat. And I think, you know, when you catalog them along the way, you know, you take Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss, and there's probably, you know, as, as a two-hander, because each one is about an hour or so, so together they're about a two-hour movie, you can see a lot of things getting worked out that I think come across a lot more polished when you get to the killing. I think The Killing is a brilliant film. I think you know, that is one of his strongest films, actually, in his filmography. And he had it, I think, on, on paper and script. It was so strong there. You know, he had such mm. a good idea. And he had the structure. I think that was in the original novel. It was, it was structured that way. So I think it, it gave him the time to concentrate on the things that, that did not work so well in Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss and make sure mm. that that wouldn't be a problem in The Killing. And I think, you know, the photography, just carrying that on through and having the more the resources and, you know, a professional cinematographer like Lucien Ballard as well. Um, and it being set in New York point. as well, it feels like he's more comfortable filming it in a town where he grew up. It seems like that is one less thing for him to think about. He knows the details, yeah. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Well, the thing about The, the, the Kidding as well, what I, why I think it's such a good film, it's such a simple film in a way. It's, mm. a, it's about a robbery and the kind of the technicality behind the robbery. And when you kind of strip a story down and make it that kind of, you know, such a, such a clear kind of idea, I think that's why it works so well. It's probably why, one of the reasons why Fear and Desire suffers, it, it's, it seems full of ideas and doesn't really kind of cling on to anything. And it's kind of like going in kind of very different directions and the kind of the, kind of the, the shifts in the way the characters are acting. But no, I completely agree, Joachim. I think The Killing is a fantastic film. Um, you know, um, that Criterion Blu-ray of it as well is... Yes. Pretty stunning yeah. as well. 
And you got to sort of get those early films out of your system, too. I mean, very few filmmakers start out with the killing as the first thing they've ever done, you know. I mean, we have Blood Simple from the Coen Brothers, but we haven't seen all their Super 8 films and all the other sort of experimental, you know, things that they did along the way. And so, you know, when I when I go back and I think about those early works of filmmakers, you can see that, you know, they weren't always so polished as their first studio production, you know, was, and as it turned out. And I think, you know, there's something to be said about a lot of that sort of youthful energy that finds its place there that uh, you know you don't impose or enforce onto your later projects. Would we be talking about Fear and Desire? Because I know that in, in many reviews, they come up with a criticism that this film, we wouldn't be talking about it if it hadn't been Stanley Kubrick. But is that is that critique valid? Really? I, well... I, I, you can look at it two ways. I mean, I, I will probably, unless I kind of ever kind of do some Stanley Kubrick episode on my other podcast, probably never watch this film again. I can't really think of a reason why I would go back and watch it again. Because, you know, for everything I've said about it, 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 it doesn't really... I, I can't really think of, an, of, an, of a time where I'll think I'm going to spend an hour of my life watching this again. I just... It, it doesn't really kind of hold that kind of a, that thing for me. But I... I, I think it's imp- I think it is important that we have it because it is a standing cube and like I said you know, he's, he's one of the most you know, revered artists of, of the modern age so I think it is it is a valid talking point to kind of get it out there but it's just not something which really I kind of have that much affection for like if it wasn't some no name guy yeah, we would never have heard of this film again I'm no. convinced of that yeah I'm sure there's Twilight Zone episodes we've been more enthralled <laughs> with you know but I think you're right. I think it is fair because, you know, when, when I look at Fear and Desire, I look at it, try and look at it through the eyes of a young Stanley Kubrick and the choices he was making based on what was available in the time. And I find that endlessly fascinating and educational for that filmmaker. So I, I'm glad it is available um, in order to do that. But I do think it, its appeal is more, I think, to the Stanley Kubrick connoisseur filmmaker side of things rather than just a general audience, per se. Yeah, I mean, I, I yeah, I, I think this is a release which is for us film fans. Yeah, I yeah. think I, I, when it got announced, I mean, I was really, really pleased when Master Cinema announced they were going to release it. So I thought, oh wow, you know, that my collection will be complete and I can watch all of Stanley Kubrick's films, and that's a good thing. Joe Average on the street could not give a shit. You know, that's people really honest with you. They're just going to kind of do this. This would mean nothing to them. So, in the, and, and it's a film which I think belongs on a label like my. It was, did it come out on Kino in America? Am I right in yes. thinking? Yeah, it did. And yeah. It, it's the type of I think it's the type of film that's probably made for the masters of cinema. I'd love to know how many, how much it's sold on yeah, name alone. Too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're right. It's it's something I had to buy it because it was available and I didn't think it would always be available. So I'd wanted to have had the best copy of it available. But yeah, I think it's like you, I've only seen the film probably three times total. And one time was for this show. And one time was in 19, what, 95 for the first <laughs> time. So yeah, it's not one that I would, I re-review, but it's, I think it is good for when you get into that Kubrick obsession, you know, and you want to sort of, you know, work your way backwards. I think it's essential in that way because it can be comforting too as a filmmaker if you haven't ever made a film before to kind of go back and take a look at that and to see it in there because you know if you're someone that if you can watch fear and desire and trash it left and right and and degrade it and say oh it's a piece of shit i can do better i just want to see what you can do just go out and then show me what you can do because you'll have a whole different perspective once you go out and try and do it 
you know, then, you know, it's easy to say from that, just, you know, heckling in the audience perspective. So I don't know. I, th I think there's a lot to be gained out of it. Um, you know, again, I think uh, from the technical photography and just the camera setups alone, there's some interesting compositions in there that, to me, feel very Kubrick. They feel like young Kubrick because he wouldn't necessarily do some of those other kind of things again. But I think that's what's kind of exciting about it, too, is you know, seeing, again, that youthful sort of energy of just making a movie, doing it finally, you know, having that dream. And, you know, I used to read about Kubrick. He'd go see every movie and he'd drive his, you know, friends nuts because he'd want to go see the crappiest, worst possible movies. But <laughs> he loved that because, you know, sometimes just the energy of saying, well, I can do something better than that was enough to get something like Fear and Desire made. And this is the other thing as well. I mean, we were just going to go back to what we were talking about, you know, respecting people's wishes. You know, obviously he didn't want this film to be seen and, you know, now he's dead, it's widely available. You know, I want to see it out of love of his work. And there's a, there's a big difference, I think, between um, something that, I know a slight controversy, but the kind of the Blu-rays that have come out of his film with the changed aspect ratio. That okay. bothers me a lot more than the fact that I'm watching this film that he didn't want me to watch. I think that's the, that, that's another area I think of the kind of the Kubrick world where I, I'm not entirely comfortable perhaps with the kind of the decisions that have been made in, in that regard. That seems a little bit uneasy. That, that sits a little bit uneasy with me. I have gone back and you know I've, I've compared the kind of the Blu-ray and the DVD of The Shining and yeah, you know I, I think I do prefer that aspect ratio of the of the DVD. Well, I mean, what are your kind of guys? What are your guys' thoughts on that? It's so interesting that you mentioned this because um, I watched that uh, Stanley Kubrick Life in Pictures. You know, documentary. Uh, I just put that on when I was, you know, kind of doing a little research for this. And I noticed at the very beginning when they cut to all the film clips should be the final answer on all the aspect ratios. Because when they cut to Clockwork Orange and Barry Lyndon, they're in 166. When they cut to Dr. Strangelove, they're both in 133 and that slight little mat that you have um, on some of the shots in Dr. Strangelove. When they cut to The Shining in Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut, they're full frame. And I thought that was really interesting because that's how that was, you know, the last we heard that was Kubrick's preferred. He liked full frame for shining full metal jacket and, you know, I, I guess eyes wide shut. But uh, the laser discs that he approved for Barry Lyndon were 166 and Clockwork was 166. So that to me was the final word on that because he could have made them 185 or full frame. He had that opportunity when that format was available. So, yeah, I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I completely agree that. The, the director's vision is what I want to see. I don't want to see what a DVD label or a studio wants us to see. I want that. I want the aspect that he shot with, that he intended for us to see. So that bothers me, as you said, a lot more than watching a film that he didn't want us to see. The, the headroom is where you start really losing it, you know, because sometimes there's some headroom space. When mm -hmm. you see some of the films, like in Full Metal Jacket, I can see where there's extra headroom that he's obviously framing for the 185 when it gets projected that way, but he's covering himself, you know, to make sure that it's there. But there's other compositions where you actually will be cutting off information by doing the max. So, yes, when I watch The Shining letterboxed, I don't see the helicopter shadow, but I miss other compositions because they feel cut off to me. Like when they're walking and you have that just great tracking shot on the side and you just they're walking through the hotel, well... It's designed from ceiling to floor, you know. Anytime you cut something off, you're cutting off an art direction and a choice in the where it fits in the frame. So it was so odd after seeing The Shining so many years in one aspect ratio and then see it again, and it's like, oh, wow, shots are cut off. 
I believe really strange. I believe you too actually seen The Shining projected at the cinema as well. I have, yeah, I've seen it a couple of times, and I, that was one of the things that that jumped out at me the first time when I went back and rewatched it. It's like, okay, I didn't see the helicopter shadow. Okay, it wasn't there, so obviously it was protected in in that mat. But I mean, when I when I saw it at the cinema, that hotel felt cavernous. Mm. It, 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 it's it's so such a big screen too. I think that yeah. probably helps too. Yeah. And uh, yeah, when I went back and saw this Blu-ray. I was like, um, I can hear myself actually. Sorry, uh, Joachim, if you, if something... yeah, I can, I can hear the echo. I can hear oh, right. it. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, no. When, when I went, so I went back and watched that blue. I was like, oh, this. I, it felt a little bit uneasy with me, and I was sort of thinking, I'm, I'm not seeing the film that kind of Kubrick wants me to see, and that, like I said, really, that's been my biggest bugbear really of this kind of Kubrick since you know post, post death thing is, is, is that, and I wonder what. You know, what control his estate has really kind of had, had over this. I mean, surely, you know, they perhaps might have been able to put their foot down. I don't know. It just seems a bit sort of, um, seems, it seems quite strange that, you know, they, they weren't able to kind of influence this a little bit more. It, it is strange. I mean, remember when that first DVD set that came out, the white box, and it was just terrible laser disc transfers, and everyone just went blah. They, they tried to get that out in 99, you know, um, right after his death. And then they corrected and they came out with the second box set which was remastered picture and sound on all the films. And that's when that first documentary came in. And then the black box set came out, I don't know, around 2007 or eight or so. And that's with the double disc editions with the, some of the bonus features that were available. They left out Barry Lyndon in that box, by the way. But they, you know, had those in there. And that's when we first got the uncut in America, Eyes Wide Shut, the UK version. Um, but it was letterboxed and so were all the others for the first time. So uh, I kept all my editions because I'm like you. It's like, eh, I don't know. I, when I watch Barry Lyndon, I don't want any information cut off. So I prefer the widest possible frame on that one. No, totally. And the other one as well, which is kind of thing, I think The Shining, there's a, so this, this kind of surprised me. But it, the, 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 the UK version, I think, is different from the American version. It is version. shorter by about yeah. more than 20 minutes, if I seem to recall. I've watched both of them. I was fascinated by that. You know, just this, you know, Kubrick as never being able to make up his mind. He had his own, you know, multiple cuts of movies. Because not only did he lop off that ending of The Shining, which I've never seen, just the photographs of. But yes, he totally recut the movie for the UK audience by over 20 minutes. In fact, the credits of The Doctor and Tony Burton are still in the opening credits, even though their scenes don't appear in the short version, oddly enough. Because he didn't go back and, and redo the opening credits and opticals and all that. But... My gut tells me it was for commercial financial reasons. It opened in America, got mixed reviews, played at, what, two hours, 20-something minutes, and just chopped in under two hours, just probably for, you know, commercial reasons. But I, I don't know. I've never read an official explanation of why he cut all those scenes out of the movie. I missed them when I watched the shorter version. It plays fast. I mean, when you watch that version, it's like, wow, The Shining under two hours. And I, and I realize sometimes it's the longer pauses that make up the tension and suspense of that movie. And it just sort of lulls you into, you know, his final suspense scenes. I think it was all very calculated. Um, and from what I've read, there's a whole bunch of other footage that didn't even make the movie that he shot and was ultimately left out. Oh. Um, you can go human? Kubrick forever, right? I mean, oh, I know, I know. He's I mean, now it's like it's like I'm itching to talk about 2001. Like, yeah, itching. I don't know how much we're gonna veer off, really. Or, no, I'm, 
I mean, I would like to, but I, I don't think I have the time to like <laughs> no, get into this type of so. <laughs> I'm just having I'm having fun chatting with you guys. It's good yeah, to see where the conversation goes. I mean, yeah, I mean, so I mean, let's get kind of like yeah, like I mean, going back to this whole kind of like fear and desire thing. You know, would we would we care if yeah you know, if it if it if it was said no, we wouldn't. I don't think. But I mean, yeah, I feel personally that my collection now is complete. I can sleep a little bit easier. Knowing mm-hmm. that the, the films there, and a, a word on the on the restoration of this as well, because I think it looks pretty decent for, for what was available. I mean, I was I put the Blu-ray on, on it. I was like, holy shit, you know, this looks really good. You know, it's like, and bearing mm-hmm. in mind it was one of these, it was found, wasn't it, in someone's cupboard or something like that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the bootleg I had was so many copies down. I was just happy to, to be able to look at it at that time. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it was. It, it's a great DVD for sure. And also getting the seafarers on there is a nice bonus. Yeah, I mean, actually, we could just talk about the extras, actually, um, yeah. that came in it. Because, I mean, we got um, Day of the Fight, the Flying Padre, and the Seafarers. I've got to be brutally honest with you, the Seafarers was, um, I, it, I don't, it was just like any other corporate film I've ever watched before. Right, right. I was, right. A, little, I was <laughs> a little bit kind of like, it, it didn't, I, di- I didn't see any of the fighting, whoring, and kind of things. Right. That, I normally, anxious that. Yeah, that sort of, uh, I normally associate with sailors when they come back to be brutally honest <laughs> Yeah, Stanley Kubrick cashing a paycheck. But, you know, it's, it's you know, elegantly shot. There's a nice tracking shot, I think, in, I remember the, the, in the lunchroom or something like that. And, you know, the color photography. But, yeah, you know, if it didn't have the name Stanley Kubrick on it, would we be that interested in it? For sure. But uh, it uh, is a good bonus. I wish the other two, Day of the Fight and Flying Padre, because that's sort of, I think that's sort of the package of the early Kubrick mm. that, that is available that I know of. Um, I've never seen that Lincoln miniseries that he shot the second unit stuff on, so I wouldn't have any point of reference on that. And I, I think there was another film he might have shot also during that period, but I don't have any information on that as well. So, yeah, yeah. Day early of the Kubrick. Fight. Yeah, you got to you got to love what you can get. Well, Day of the Fight, I thought was actually really good. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, I was, I was really yeah. quite into it, and it was, you know, it, yeah. I mean, because I know he had a fascination, didn't he, with boxing? And uh, yeah, I, mm-hmm. I was really impressed. Flying Padre, I wasn't so much interested in. That just seemed pretty kind of fluffy. But this kind of master cinema box, actually, I was, I was, when I was looking, I think they might have missed a trick, actually, because I would have marketed it as being like Stanley Kubrick, the early years or something like that, just kind mm-hmm. of plonking kind of fear and desire on it. I sort of, yeah, like I said, I was a little, I was a little bit disappointed with the film. But, I mean, yeah, it's nice to have the, the, those films. Well, the one thing that gets me about Stanley Kubrick as well is that, other than on those kind of Blu-rays and things, obviously get the kind of the making of The Shining. I think the features for these films are quite lacking. I would have liked some more kind of retrospective kind of mm-hmm. work to be done. I mean, yeah, I'm interested in kind of hearing about more of his films. But I think that and is we something. know Vivian Kubrick shot on Full Metal Jacket. You see in the documentaries a lot of behind-the-scenes footage that she shot but she never completed the documentary for that. So they've just been sort of rating some of her, you know, behind the scenes footage for that uh, Life and Pictures documentary and stuff. But I w- I'm with you. I wish there was, you know, I, I guess there still can be, maybe, I don't know. I mean, they're gonna, are they going to put out it on Blu-ray again? I don't know how many more times they're going to release all this. But uh, yeah, I mean, I understand why he did not participate in extras. He could have done commentaries for his Criterion, uh, 2001 and Strange Love and Lolita in the 90s, but you know that's not the kind of filmmaker he was. He was going to let the films speak for themselves. Well, I've actually heard though um, from my aunt actually that for Eyes Wide Shut, he was actually going to really be quite active in the marketing of it and was actually going to. That's gonna... what his daughter says in the documentary too. I really I read... that too. It was probably time, and you know, yeah, there would have been a lot of you know 
certainly anticipation and, you know, a big Rolling Stone or Playboy or two or three time, you know, magazine interviews would have whatnot would have probably, you know, brought Stanley Kubrick back into the consciousness without all the sort of wacky stories that have been collecting through the 90s. Um, anything else you would like to discuss? Um, I, I can't really think of anything. I mean, I, I guess the kind of the, the, the question is, I mean, you, c- can you kind of recommend this film? And I, I, I mean, John, I mean, wh- wh- where do you kind of stand on that? Um, I kind of, you know, back when we did the early works episode for the Hollywood Saloon about all the filmmakers and their early works, we did talk about, you know, Day of the Fight for Kubrick. Um, I can recommend them for filmmakers and for students that are interested in the form. Certainly, I think it's almost essential in there. Because uh, you will get something out of it, you know. I think you know when you take a look at what he had available for his budget and for his resources, and, and basically how he made a film by by yourself. You can only really compare it to other films that basically someone made by themselves. So I kind of put it into uh, into that category. But uh, yeah, as a piece of entertainment, no, I would not have someone start there with Kubrick. I'd have him start at The Killing and then go straight to Path of Glory. Hmm. Yeah, I would agree that. This is not a film to watch for entertainment's sake. This is a film you watch if you're interested in Kubrick and, or if you're interested in making films and analysing films, then you can watch this to gain something. But other than that, you can't really, you can't really expect anyone to get anything out of this for entertainment's sake. Yeah, there's no real big twist or story thing no. where you kind of go, whoa, what did I just see? I need to rewatch it again. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's. It, I mean, I, I agree with you guys. I think it's one for the completists out there. And you know, like I said, I, I would never say to someone, "Hey, look at this new director. This director <laughs> I like called Stanley Kubrick. Watch this," because they're just going to watch it and go, um, "That's it. Thank you very much." I mean, yeah, it, it's. It, it, I mean, it makes me laugh that. I mean, he called it a kind of inept, boring, and pretentious, or something like that. And I mean, that's a brutal piece of criticism, you know, self-criticism. And I, <laughs> let me ask yeah. you this: on the night of the premiere. In 1953, when he was showing it, do you think he felt that way that night, or was he just so happy to have a film projected <laughs> on a screen, just looking at his own work? You know, exactly. I get I think why the later Kubrick thought that for sure. Yeah, I mean, he he must have gone back and been lying there in bed at night, thinking, right, all these films made 2001, and you know, these mm. kind of like masterpieces, Fear and Desire. It's like, oh shit, you know, did I actually do that? You know, but I mean, <laughs> I said go back and you know, like it's like I think you know, from a kind of a film kind of historian point of view it's 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 worth checking out but like, like i said i mean if someone said to me like tonight you know got any films to recommend this wouldn't ever come into my consciousness <laughs> you know you just you just couldn't you couldn't do that to someone even one of your worst <laughs> enemies you know what i mean but it's like i said you know I, I gave it like one and a half stars or something like which you know <laughs> incredibly dismissive thing to do and but you know it, like i said I, I will probably never watch this film again but you know it's 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 there now and uh, you know it's, it's part of the collection and you know you, I'm it's glad an important it, I'm... part of the Stanley Kubrick story. You have to go through this chapter, I think. You know, he cannot get to where he gets to until he goes through these sort of trials, is how I look at it. I mean, just out of interest, I mean, do you, do you, of you two have a film by Stanley Kubrick that you legitimately don't like? Dr. You... Strangelove. I said it. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know uh, some uh, people uh, that are like that. They just don't get into the vibe of the humor of Dr. Yeah. Strangelove. They just, they're not... They're not on that level of it, so they're not into it, you know. And to them, I say, okay, but God, what about all the photography, you know? And what? Yeah, about, but it's know? it's the humor that I don't get into um, because I'm. It's it plays like a comedy, but I'm not 
entertained by it. I'm not entertained as as a comedy. I can recognize its uh, satirical aspects and I can recognize the beautiful photography, the art direction and some of the performances. But as a comedy, I it falls flat for me completely. And that is that is the one film of his that um, I really don't get. Lolita is the only one I haven't seen, but Lots of Strange Love is one that um, just it doesn't really work for me now. What about George C. Scott? <laughs> Do you find George C. Scott funny at all? <laughs> um, no. Okay, yeah. I really don't. He cracks me up in it. I know he was always, you know, questioned because Kubrick always chose his most outrageous takes that he did. But uh, I don't know. I just, <laughs> every time he cuts away from it, all these little looks and glances, they just get me. But, but it, uh, it's been a while since I've seen it, uh, yeah. I have to admit. So it might. Oh, Lita's a great discovery. That's that's going to be a lot of that'll be a lot of fun. I mean, it's a it's a Kubrick picture for sure. Oh, I just read. Yeah, you see, I, just I, read I, the I book. just chuck a spanner in the works there. I I can't stand the Lita. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I nice. really can't, yeah. I cannot watch it. I, I mean, I've I've seen it twice, and uh, yeah, I just I'm like, oh god, no. I it, it's, it's one of those. I might it might something might click for me in in a few years, and I might suddenly start liking the Lita. But yeah, um, oh. I, I really struggle to get through that one. And uh, I don't know. I, I Because it's Stanley Kubrick, I think that I should get more out of it than I am. But I was, I was saying this with um, Hunter a couple of weeks ago when we were recording an episode on The Last Temptation of Christ. I despise that film. And mm-hmm. it's like, it's bad. And it, it, I sit there thinking, right, you should like this film. Every time I sit down and watch it, right, come on. Something, this will be the, the screening where you suddenly go, bang. You love mm-hmm. The Last Temptation of Christ. Every time I watch it, I'm just in hysterics because I'm just sat there thinking, where's Joe Pesci? Why, is, <laughs> wh- 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 why does Judas have the same haircut as Annie? And I can't get over those kind of things. And Lita, Lolita's one of these funny. I never think of those things watching that movie. That's, that's <laughs> no. great. I love it. <laughs> no, I do. Watch now I probably will. Watch that, watch that first thing where he's building a cross and tell me you're not expecting... Joe Pesci to turn up and say, Jesus, you dumb Jew, fuck, what are you doing? Because every time... <laughs> well, I see, when I saw Last Temptation of Christ, Joe Pesci hadn't been in a Scorsese movie since Raging Bull, so it wasn't even on my mind. But if I'd seen Goodfellas 50 times and then seen Last Temptation, then yeah, I might, I might have that impression too. So it's, I guess it's all about when I, when I got into that film. I was just like, where is all the, the camera moves from Color of Money? That would have been more of a question, you know. I said, where are the stylistics he brought to After Hours and Color of Money? Which, you know, he just didn't have the, the time and the budget on Temptation, I think. You know, and it probably wasn't as necessary. But anyway, we're, God, we can go yeah. off on Scorsese. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but yeah, uh, Lolita is definitely on my list of ones which, I, yeah, I, I, I struggle to make it Well, and the one. thing about Kubrick is as great as go back, wait 10 years and then see it. And you will mm. see a different movie. You, it, as you grow older, I find, you know, films that I watched, you know, in my teenage years, in my 20 years, in my 20s, now that I reach, you know, in my later 30s and 40s, they are very different films as I mature and I have, you know, different experiences in life and so forth. So that is another gift that, that keeps on giving is those, they'll, they'll never get stale. They'll always be good on your shelf, you know, at a later date. Well, you know, a classic example of that is Close Encounters. Because when I watch that film and I see him get in that spaceship, I don't think, oh, that's wonderful. I think, you selfish piece of shit, you've got a wife and three kids. <laughs> and you just what Gilbert and- thinks today too. <laughs> and, you just, and you just like leave I've heard, I've heard him say that in an interview. It's like, oh, I could never have him go in the spaceship today. But the Spielberg of '77, mm-hmm. you damn right, he's going in that spaceship because the Spielberg of '77 wanted to know what was out there, and if it meant sacrificing that, it was worth it. 
you know, like a filmmaker. He wanted to, you know, push and, and do that. And I think that's something to say about youth versus, you know, growing up, getting married, having children, having, you know, expressing, you know, their lives and living through them. So it's an interesting comment on Spielberg. And I, I get it, I guess, you know, from, from that perspective. So, John, I mean, do you have a, a Kubrick one that you're not so keen on? You know, I, and maybe because I'm unfair because I can always divide the content into the technique, you know, um, because even with Spartacus, you know, I like Spartacus. I don't love it, but I still love looking at it, you know, the widescreen frame and the compositions and a lot of the scenes, the, the battle scenes and so forth. So uh, I don't know. There's something I just find interesting about all of his work um, from one angle or the other. And of course, I have others that I like more. Like, I, I'm, I really like Barry Lyndon quite a bit. Uh, I can never get over the impact that, you know, Clockwork had on me. And I just remember looking forward to Full Metal Jacket and Eyes Wide Shut as being new Kubrick films when they came out in the theater. So there was always that sort of excitement about, oh, I'm going to get a, a new Kubrick film. And, you know, neither one of those disappointed um, me at all. And, you know, I remember a lot of people on Full Metal Jacket be like, oh, yeah, the first half's good, but they didn't like the second half, which I love your comment earlier <laughs> about the boring first half and the action-packed second half. Because, <laughs> again, it's so pure Kubrick. Everyone's views are going to be, you know, taking sides and going to see different things about it. But at the end, I, I defer to the master, who most often was ahead of us, the audience, and his choices. And for whatever reason he was making them, you know, we would catch up to them later. But... uh and I liked how he was playing with film form by the time, you know, with Full Metal Jacket and even with Eyes Wide Shut, you know, just kind of doing things that weren't typical and predictable in sort of their, their form and how they played out. What do, you, what do you two think? Do you count AI as a Stanley Kubrick film? Um, no, Story. because it's written and directed by Steven Spielberg. The question I have for you is, would Kubrick have directed that script by Spielberg? No, and this is the no. this is the thing. I mean, when I, your when, I, when, I, when I when I when I think about AI, when I kind of you know Stanley Kubrick, I sort of have it as this sort of like you know this was his kind of passion, you know, this project that was kind of like burning away and, and never got made. But when I watch it, I I sit there and I think to myself, oh my god! Every time I watch it, it just cements the tragedy, the fact that he didn't make AI because that would I, I'm convinced that would have been one of the greatest science fiction films ever made as it is. I, the last 10 minutes of that, I'm just like, right, come on, think of an excuse, a legitimate reason to turn this off because it just it just yeah. sort of becomes... It, and it, there's annoying little things in it. Like, I mean, I know there's a few kind of musical kind of touches in the film which you know, they knew Stanley Kubrick wanted in there. So you get these little hints of, I think, of what he was trying to do. But what what, oh, what that film is, is just... Ugh. And again, I'm, I'm amazed that his estate are so, was so supportive of it as well because I seem to remember his brother-in-law... Um, was mm -hmm. really endorsing it when it came out and I was thinking are you just doing that to be polite or you know is it you've probably got a pretty big paycheck off it I don't know it was uh, yeah that was, that was another one I thought was a bit strange well and, and it was probably only in the interest of the film to be positive towards it I mean they gave you know all the production designs and whatnot but ultimately yeah Spielberg's going to make choices even though he makes choices that are outside some of his comfort zone I think in the in the first half of the film um, I think, yeah, you're right. He falls on you know, a certain sentimentality at the end. And I always wondered, you know, what, what would have been different about the ending? What choices Kubrick would have made? And my understanding of the story is it was supposed to be that when the aliens find, you know, the young robot boy, he's the only sort of memory of humans that's left 
So his desire to be a real boy ultimately kind of comes true because he's the only one that carries the memories, experiences that humans have on Earth. And they're able to sort of look into him and understand human behavior through this robotic boy. Now, and that's not really how it played out. This whole you can spend one day with your mother thing and all that seemed like it was invented for the movie. But I don't know. I've never read you know, any of the original scripts that Kubrick worked on or anything like that. But uh, it seemed like these were the choices that it had been stumping him for 15 or so years as he worked on that script. Um, I need to be wrapping up, guys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <Fair enough>. sorry. <laughs> sorry. Uh, um, but where can we, what's going on with the Hollywood conflict uh, in the future here, Tom? Um, well, um, we've, uh, well, I've already designed like the first 15 shows, so we kind of already plotted them out, what they were going to be. It's just kind of finding time in everyone's schedules to record and, and do all that. Mm -hmm. So we, uh, we've got a, a baseball show planned, but it's just so big that it's going to end up taking up a lot of time. But we want to cover a lot of different movies like we did on political cinema. We have a Decalogue show planned for show 10, of course, um, okay. whenever we can get to it. So it's just uh, it's the kind of thing that, you know, it's a lot easier to schedule two people than it is four. And I had to learn that <laughs> the hard way. But I still enjoy the format of a lot of voices. So it keeps me interested in just hearing, you know, different kind of takes on something. And, uh, you know, we'll see where it goes. And you can find John's show at hollywoodgauntlet.blogspot.com. Is that right? It's also .com. I got the .com. Also .com, yeah. And you've got those great uh, study guides, as you call them, where you can uh, get a lot of interesting extra material. For obvious legal reasons, I can't speak about the study guides other than to recommend that you download them. Yes. <laughs> Great. Tom, where can we find you on the online? Um, you can find more of me on 24framescast.blogspot.com. There is an episode coming very soon in which I will be eviscerating Last Temptation of Christ with Hunter and oh, being, incredibly, being incredibly offensive towards his Catholic um, uh, uh, upbringing. So, yeah, look forward to that. You can find me on Twitter at 24framescast. You can find us at moccast.com blogspot.com you can find us on twitter at moc underscore cast and you can email us at mastersofcinemacast at gmail.com so uh, thank you both for joining us uh, for joining me on this show uh, it's been a great conversation thank you what's next for you guys what is next actually we're actually taking a bit of a break oh that's yeah, the I, end of june no okay. i'm going solo actually that's so you're going gonna, solo yeah i'm yeah. going okay. to be doing um, a review on the new eureka classics line and i'm going to be talking about the warlord which is a Franklin J. Schaffner film with Charlton Heston and a film called Violent Sunday by Richard Fleischer, which, yeah, I'll be getting those yes. out as soon as I possibly can. Nice, okay. great, cool. Guys, thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. No, thank yeah. you, John. It's been great. Uh, so until next time, thank you for listening and goodbye.